You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Welcome to the 42 cast, your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. As always, I am your host, Nathan, and we have another great episode lined up for you where we're going to continue our Get to Know Your Doctor series talking about Patrick Troughton, the second doctor. But before we do that, let's meet our cast for this week. And starting off, he's only on here irregularly, but he is one of my oldest friends. He was one of my groomsmen. He is a doctor of history, and that is my buddy, Eric. How are you doing, Eric? Hey, Nathan. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Things are pretty good here. We're uh, just getting ready to start planting season, so, you know. Yeah, I know that's totally unconnected to anybody else's world, but, you know. So, has the lockdowns and the coronavirus and everything, like, affected you with you know farming and everything at all not really i'm i'm essential but i did Mm -hmm. i have had to like draw up letters so that if i have to cross state boundaries and stuff so Mm -hmm. it's a little surreal though but Mm -hmm. you don't get much more um socially distanced than sitting in a tractor cab right no i mean do you have employees yeah i have a couple that that uh i've I've had to do letters for them too so if Mm -hmm. they get stopped by cops Mm-hmm. It's it's very what strange times we live in. Yeah, no, I understand. And remember, don't dump bodies in the river. Yeah, that's right. It's forbidden. <laughs> it is forbidden. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Eric and I are colossal dorks. Um, yeah, so, we are. <laughs> so, Eric, anything else going on for you other than, than farming? I am in the process of genuinely making my way through that sea monster manuscript that i've been talking mm. about for forever mm-hmm. and uh i'm hoping to get that out in the next couple of years actually which sounds like it's a long way away but in book writing time a couple of years is pretty good i'd say no can you explain just a little bit for anyone that might be coming into this one that didn't you know hear any other episodes you've been on well by by the time we get to what the seventh doctor you know maybe i'll be able to tell people how to buy this thing but um, sure it's a book about Chessie the Sea Monster, which was a, a, a phenomenon in the 80s in, in Maryland. We're sort of the third best at everything in the history of America. And so other places have Nessie or Champ, but we have Chessie for the Chesapeake Bay. So uh, <laughs> I'm I'm slowly writing a book about that. And I just love the concept of this. <laughs> I never heard of it until you told me about it, but... Uh... Yeah, the uh, the Chesapeake Bay monster, which, you know, is obviously part of a Zygon invasion. Obviously. Shockingly, I've had more attention lately than I've ever had. I've, I've had people calling me about interviews and research, and I don't know, there's a, a zeitgeist going on about sea monsters right now. Yeah, I, I've heard, I saw you post at one point that you gave, like, some sort of a presentation at uh, some society or other, right? Yeah, it was, uh, 
it was an environmental society actually that mm. they wanted me to come talk about weird things in the bay so <laughs> when you need somebody to talk about weird things in the bay <laughs> who are you gonna call you gotta protect the environment for chessie too <laughs> well that's that's kind of the story there right. <laughs> okay well that's very cool eric Thank you. Someday I hope that I can say that it's actually done, though. Okay, sure. No, no, no. Yeah, and of course. Yeah, of course you're coming back for all the doctors, so, you know. I hope so. Right. <laughs> all right. Well, it's good to have you back on the show, Eric. Thanks. You're welcome. All right. Next up, Halen from the Satellite of Love. He is the guy that posts under a handle that sounds like he has little arms. That is Mr. Mike Nelson, Mr. Trex himself. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing okay. Okay, and what is that voice? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Westworld's going on right now, and I'm getting a lot of interviews and questions about it. It's it's been a crazy season. It's been a crazy season. So sorry, I I, I was in my Jeffrey Wright role. Sorry. Yeah, I didn't mention the fact that you're a Jeffrey Wright lookalike, though. I only mentioned Mike Nelson and and that you're a T Rex. Well, I can't really growl on stream or on the okay. podcast, can I? <laughs> well, no, you've done it before. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but I'm doing good. Thanks for having me back. Uh, no problem. <laughs> so, Mike, what's going on for you? Like, you said some very vaguely ominous things before we started. So, what's going on with you? Yeah, I haven't made a Facebook post about this. So, last m- a month ago, uh, I was moving my office to our other office. I don't get to have an office anymore to myself. I had to room back in with the rest of the IT crowd. Mm. Pun intended. Because mm-hmm. uh, we're in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> and uh it so uh, we were moving the last box and i hurt my back hmm. i didn't really think anything of it because like oh there's a pinch back there but come to find out like now a month later i had to get an mri done last week last week mm-hmm. and i got the results back and i have two tears in my lower back oh <laughs> no yeah i can barely stand well, i can put some pressure but like it's just it's basically because of that pullback, I have sciatica. Mm-hmm. I have sciatica now. There's two tears in my back. And tomorrow morning, as of, uh, as of this recording, I have to go see an, orthodon- an orthopedic surgeon to determine if I can, if, if I need surgery or not. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just haven't had the, mo- I think I talked about my back being pulled a while ago on Facebook, but since the MRI result, I have not actually posted. So not many people really know, except for like the select people that I like my, my girlfriend, my family and a couple of uh, uh, friends around here and my coworkers. But yeah, so I have to go, I get to, he gets to see the MRI results and if I have to have surgery or not. And if I don't, it's most likely according to my doctor, it's just, you know, c- pumping, put some needles in my back and pumping in some steroids. It's like, Mm, I don't know if I really want large needles in my spine. So let me just tell you, as someone okay. who has had a herniated disc twice, the same one two times. This feels mm. like this actually feels. I guess this feels like it because I'm sitting down, and if I uh, my girlfriend got me this amazing pillow where I'm actually mm. sitting straight, but if I'm not, I'm like leaning over to the le- leaning over my right side, and just it feels like my pelvis is just out of whack. Mm. But go ahead, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I am no stranger to back pain. I have had chronic back pain my whole life. And, of course, the two herniated discs. So, the first time I herniated the disc, I had the steroid injections. 
and it was a series of three that you do like every other week or something. I, I, I think that's what it is. I only needed the first two, and then I was fine. I felt completely and totally fine. So don't be worried about the steroid injection. They do these all the time. They're very standard. But it's a needle in my back. I, I know that. I know, I know. But what I'm just saying is it, it's not going to hurt you. It is actually going to help you. The second time, though, the problem was that it, like your, your, uh, your discs are like elastic. And if you stretch okay. them too many times, they don't go back. So the second time, they tried the steroid injections, but it didn't help. I went through all three, and it didn't do anything. And so I did have to have surgery the second time. But yeah, I, I would say definitely if, if steroids are, are an option, go with that over the surgery. And since we've now become the Medical Issues podcast, I'm going to say... It's a doctor episode. It's a Doctor Who thing. So it's still the doctor. It's just not that doctor. But go ahead, please. Yeah, I, I, I um, managed to get sciatica while running a couple of years ago. and Did about mm. three months of physical therapy afterwards. But it, it really does help. But you're going to be stretching a lot. Mm. Yeah, uh, my, I went to see my physical therapist because uh, so I work in IT for, in the healthcare, and so we have a, we I literally go to the doctor's office all the time to go work on the computers, and then go see the physical therapist, and went to go see the doctor. He's like, go see Barry. It's like our physical our massage therapist. Like, go see Barry. See what he does. Barry, uh, my girlfriend nicknamed him Barry the Butcher because <laughs> uh, one day I was walking just fine, and then after Barry worked me to get everything back realigned, I'm like walking slowly i'm super tight and i was like oh i saw barry oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> but he has magic hands he's a great guy that's good i actually had a bad experience with a chiropractor and that's why i'm kind of off chiropractors is because i think he made my herniated disc worse before i knew it was a herniated disc but you know whatever because yeah i was in a lot more pain after visit visiting the chiropractor than i was when i you know before i went i don't know when I go to my chiropractor and he straightens my back out after being slumped over that uh, tractor steering wheel for a month and a half, I, I see Jesus every time he fixes <laughs> my back. <laughs> oh, that's good. I, I know a lot of people swear by their chiropractors. It's just I, for whatever reason, after having seen several, I've never had, I've never felt any benefit from going. Let's put it that way. Yes, that's that's my currently my my big fear right now to figure out what's happening tomorrow. Yeah. So, Mike, I know that probably means you've been bed bound or at least just sitting a lot. But anything good? Like, <laughs> do, you, do you get to have any fun or anything? Working in IT, especially if, well, with my small team, we have the option. If we have to work from home, we have to work from home. Mm -hmm. uh, but most of the time, I'm in the office if, if I'm feeling good. Mm -hmm. Today, I was not. I had a bad experience this weekend. Uh, because of my back, I've only been sleeping for about three hours a night for the past two weeks. Mm. I mean, I wake up at like 3.30 in the morning, and I take a bath, and I get out, and I'm like, all right, let's just start the day. And it's been going on. But uh, good-wise, I mean, I worked from home today. My phone didn't ring all day, but I think it's because I didn't have our OneTalk app open. So I'm worried that there were actually calls I just missed. But mm. uh, <laughs> I mean, good-wise, it's uh, I'm staying... I'm basically either home or I'm at work because of my leg. I really can't go grocery shopping with my girlfriend. So it's, so that sucks, but just uh, I'm thankful for video games. I'm mm. thankful. I am a gamer because I'm not in the house hysterical freaking out. It's like, Oh, I need to go outside. Oh, I need to go jog. It's like, mm, you know what? If my back allowed me like, you know what? Let me go play a VR game, get some exercise. I'll be fine. <laughs> there you go. 
so yeah well i'm i'm glad you have an outlet right now and uh i hope that you get the best possible news on your back thank you thank you you're welcome all right and finally he is our resident brit he is a guy who i met at dragon con this past year and that is anthony how are you doing anthony i am doing wonderful thank you well that's good to hear (laughs) after mike's story i could use something (laughs) (laughs) so um what's been going on for you anthony well like everyone else who doesn't work outside of an office i have been working from home for the last month Mm -hmm which has been interesting. I don't think I could do it full-time. I'm kind of ready to be around people again, but equally somewhat concerned for my health. So, um, you know, I'll keep doing this for as long as I have to, but I will be pretty happy the day I I feel comfortable going back into the office. Aside from that, just I'm losing weight because I'm cooking rather than eating out. Mm. There's less social drinking, so that's it's great. I've lost like seven pounds since this began. See, this is fascinating because actually I was I was talking with somebody the other day and we were talking about quarantine. We were talking about how everybody's going to have to go out and buy new pants because the usual expectation is people are going to be sitting around not exercising and eating junk food. And so then they're going to actually, but you're talking about actually losing weight because yeah, of this. So. I, feel, I, feel, I feel so counterculture right now. Right. <laughs> well, good for you. Beyond that, um, if I if I may get a slight plug in here, I've obviously been working a lot in my spare time on on the Watches in the Fourth Dimension podcast. Mm-hmm. So we are at the end of the Hartnell era and about to get started on the Troughton era. So a little out of sync with where you guys are, but I've seen it all before, so I'm ready to talk Pat. Sure. That's what we're here to do, definitely. But yeah, I was kind of curious if you guys had started Troughton yet, because I know that you record in advance of what you're putting out, so I wasn't sure how far ahead you were. So we we have just recorded our Hartnell retrospective, Hmm. and we will be regrouping in about two weeks' time to do Power of the Daleks. So we're we're, we're close. The more enthusiastic members of the cast have already watched it. Hmm. I've been busy doing a little bit of editing instead, but um, yeah. Looking forward to, to getting started on, on Trouton since he's one of my favorite doctors. Sure. All right. No, that sounds really cool. So, yeah, Anthony, thank you for coming back on the 42 cast. Thank you for having me. All right. So, we are not going to do a five minute controversy this week, both because a, I don't really want to talk about anything that's going on right now, and there isn't a whole lot of entertainment news anyway, and B, just so that we can get to talking about Doctor Who as quickly as possible. So uh, what we're going to do now is we are going to pause from a promo from another fine podcast, and then we will come back to talk about the second Doctor. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for the comedy stylings of Hugh for the board Collection. When I was part of the Bork Collective, my Bork wife was so fat, when she sat around the Collective, uh, she sat around the Collective. The Monster Sci-Fi Show is part of the ESO Network. It's sci-fi from a certain point of view.
And we're back. And uh, like we talked about at the top of the show, we are going to talk about Patrick Troughton, the second doctor. So Patrick Troughton came into the show because William Hartnell decided that, well, he wasn't, how do I put this? Basically, I'm very mad at the adventure in space and time docudrama because even though it, I mostly enjoyed it, that bit where they basically fired Hartnell is so much of a lie <laughs> that it just angers me when they get to that part. So basically, uh, Hartnell stepped down, he said, because the show was basically going in a direction he didn't want it to go anymore. But he was very happy that they picked an actor of Patrick Troughton's caliber as the person to replace him. So at the time, Patrick Troughton was a well-known name. He had done a lot of film work. He was going in to do television with Doctor Who. He had some very interesting ideas on how to play the part, which it's probably for the best historically that he did not get <laughs> his initial way on that. <laughs> But a lot of people cite Patrick Troughton as being, and his era, as being the beginning of quote-unquote Doctor Who, because a lot of the things that will carry through the rest of the series run start with Troughton rather than with Hartnell. Although, I do also give people side-eye that say that humor started with Troughton, because, you know, these are the same people, I think, who just watched An Unearthly Child and then, like, skipped, you know, all the rest of the Hartnell era, because there was definitely humor in the Doctor's character. Uh, hey, first have they so. seen the Romans? <laughs> yeah, the Romans, <laughs> the Myth Makers. I mean, there's, there's tons Marvel of... Marvel had phenomenal comic timing. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about Troughton. So, Eric, since I know you're familiar with it, why don't you mention, uh, <laughs> just get everybody started talking, because I'm not sure if Mike's even heard this story before. What was Troughton's original idea of how to play the <laughs> oh <my> doctor? God. <laughs> well, I, I think he, he wanted to be, what, a windjammer captain was one of them, and then uh, he was going to do blackface, I think. Yeah, yes, he was oh. going to blackface up with an earring. And be a tuck, and right? Play Right, so it'd be and be like, like Sinbad yes. almost or something. <laughs> right, um, it'd be like a pirate captain, basically, of the TARDIS. Although I've I recently read something, and I have no idea where that suggested that that was none of that was really true. That that was just sort of stuff that's been bolted on, you know, by fans over the years. So who knows? Um, I'm glad that that none of that came to pass because it would have been awful. Well, yeah, it would have been awful historically. Like now, people would be accusing like the the show of being racist. So even if it had lasted, no, no, which I don't think it would. That's talents of Wang Chiang. Well, no, <laughs> I, 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 let's, let's not go down that route right now. <laughs> we can talk about Enemy of the World for that in a little bit. No, but. no, no. Um, Tomb of the Cybermen. Oh, the yeah. Doctor Who became racist. Yeah, all right, yeah. Let's 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 table that for the moment. So apparently, the Windjammer Captain was real, and he was presented in full costume to Sidney Newman and Sidney Newman said oh hell no or what <laughs> and it was Sidney Newman who suggested maybe you should go kind of cosmic hobo and that's kind of where they went from there so the windjammer captain at least was something they actually considered and explored I thought that Troughton himself said it in an interview, though, about the blackface and the earring and everything. But maybe I, maybe it's just because I've read that story so many times, I, I can well, see him I, saying it. Yeah, I think it was I, something I, he said, but yeah. to what extent he was, you know, just spitballing or just winding people up, who knows? He seems like he was a bit of a, a prankster. Yeah, yeah, I think that he he often re remembered things in his interviews. 
mainly I think because he didn't like doing the interviews. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, it's it's funny you bring that up because um, as a historian, I kind of cringe at Troughton because I find that a lot of what he says doesn't comport with other things that are out there. So it's it's kind of funny, isn't it, that this we know an awful lot about the beginning of the series and we know an awful lot about kind of everything after Troughton. But this this crucial moment when those two eras are transforming into from Hartnell to Troughton, we really don't know an awful lot about it. It's a little kind of misty. So anyway. Yeah, it doesn't help that we don't have people like Ennis Lloyd around to talk to and, and sort of get like historical context from his side of things also. So Mike, Mike Nelson. Oh, that's right. There is only one Mike this time. Sorry. Hey. <laughs> so, you know, Troughton as a character is the whole second doctor and everything. You know, when you were watching through, like, what was your sort of impression of going, you know, you went from Hartnell, like I think you mentioned when we talked about Hartnell, he's the grandpa, right? You yeah. know, that's, that's, you know, what was your, what were your thoughts of Troughton's doctor. I think the Cosmocobo was actually is just darn accurate to mm -hmm. to be honest. It's every time I I look at him he isn't really keeping his clothes completely tight. It's, I feel like mm -hmm. he's just wearing like uh he's a small guy in a giant coat mm -hmm. just for reasons. Mm -hmm. And when, every time that Piccolo comes out I'm just like what are you doing? <laughs> like is it what is this going to be? And the Cosmocobo is probably just the accurate depiction of it. I just don't I don't see him as sophisticated in some sense, like as, especially as he carries himself, how he talks to himself. It's like, it's honestly so super fast. Like you would see just a homeless person on the street talking to himself. Mm -hmm. And when you see that from other doctors in a sense, it's like, Oh, he's really thinking when you look at Troughton and how he carries himself, it's like, dude, you are seriously talking to yourself <laughs> and everyone else is freaking out around you. <laughs> Are you by any chance familiar with Columbo? Uh, yeah, the TV show with the yeah, 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 um, the detective. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people compare the Second Doctor to Columbo. That's super accurate. Yeah, <laughs> I was I just curious what you thought about that because yeah, it's a it's a thing that comes up quite a bit because the idea of he's really smart, but you wouldn't know that from looking at him. Yeah, I mean Troughton. Even though again, the way he just carried himself was uh, was honestly just a shambles, and I still feel that angry, angry grandpa that Hartnell carried. I still felt that from Troughton at times when he's talking to the companions and he's not really just talking to them. He's talking a little, still a little at them, but then he just all of a sudden clicks back in. It's like, Oh, you're helping me. Um, I'm sorry, Jamie, go ahead and just go do this real fast. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and he was a really interesting person. Uh, how, how Troughton carried the second doctor. It was a really interesting placement for that. Yeah. So, Anthony, what are your thoughts of sort of the second Doctor as a character? Oh, well, I mean, the, the second Doctor has long been one of my favorites. I mean, mm. I think he was one of the first Doctors I watched in the early 90s, mm. uh, which tends to cement a Doctor as, as a favorite, right? Mm -hmm. The first few you watch, you always tend to like. But one thing that I've always noticed is how future or Doctors who came after him, I should say, tend to refer back to his character either explicitly. I mean, you, you listen to Matt Smith talking and he very much spoke about how just after he was cast, he went to watch Tomb of the Cybermen mm -hmm. and Matt Smith and uh, Patrick Troughton's performance really influenced Matt Smith. You see it reflected in Sylvester McCoy's performance as the seventh doctor. I, I think 
a lot of the doctors that came after root their performances in Patrick Troughton's. And going back to what you're saying about how a lot of people see him as the Doctor Who, I don't think that's necessarily accurate, but there is some kind of element in how his Doctor seems to be the one that everyone keeps harking back to rather than William Hart. And I think there's a very good reason for that, and that's because he is extremely good. Yeah, I always have a knee-jerk reaction about things like that, though, because it's like, I, I also feel that Hartnell is extremely good. He's just doing a completely different kind of character than what Troughton was doing. And, and honestly, I think that that's a strength. If they had gone with the whole idea that John Wiles had of just like the toy maker turns the doctor invisible and when he comes back, he's got a different face and he's played by a different actor, but it was just someone aping Hartnell, that would have been a disaster. Yeah, yeah. completely agree. Having uh, someone play it completely new and just kind of hand waving it with it's a renewal like a butterfly and then just moving on, I think was a far better way to take it. Yeah, and it gives this a lot more. Um flexibility in the role for Troughton to make it his own mm -hmm. right he's not constrained by what came before just go and, go and do your own thing make make the role yours play it as you would want to play it mm -hmm. I mean genius no yeah. uh so Eric uh, thoughts on Troughton's doctor well for me Troughton is well I, you know I love the 60s like mm -hmm. to me <clears throat> excuse me the 60s are the in many ways the apex of the series so it's always a toss-up between Hartnell and Troughton for me. But when I was a young fan, the Troughton era was the big unknown, especially mm -hmm. in America, because, you know, you basically went from very late Hartnell to, to Pertwee in those years. So that I remember, it's funny, the way I got into the series was a little kind of out of order. And one of the first stories I ever saw was the Ark and the Gunfighters, which remain strong favorites for me and then for whatever reason i ended up tuning into the three doctors not too much later in the future and you know so i had the connection drawn between what i had already seen but then there's this person there <laughs> this mm. uh this mo look-alike yes. as my brother always insisted on oh, oh my dad was the exact same he, he referred to him as the mo dog or just as mo yeah which is unfortunate. Right. <laughs> but for me, he was this very mysterious figure. And the Troughton era intersects with that sort of swinging 60s thing that I love that comes out of The Saint and The Avengers and The Prisoner and all those, those shows that I grew up watching on TV. So it, it, the aesthetic of it really does it for me anyway. And, and Troughton really fits into that. And I think in a lot of ways, he's sort of like the Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band to Hartnell's Hard Day's Night. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? He, he's a, there's a swinging 60s-ness about Troughton that, I don't know, makes the world he's inhabiting deeper and more sophisticated and a little bit more tongue-in-cheek maybe than what had been presented in the first, you know, in the Hartnell era. Mm. I mean, the great pity, of course, is so many of those shows are missing, mm -hmm. although seemingly fewer every day. But I, you know, I remember when um, Enemy and Web came back, and you started, and and even Tomb back in '91 or whenever that was. Yes, I was going to bring it up about the excitement over Tomb being returned. Well, and 
automatically fandom sort of turned on those stories. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I've never had that experience. I, I mean, to me, watching those episodes is like, it's, you're, un, you're unwrapping the most special present ever. <laughs> and I, 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 I mean, watching Web and Enemy for the first time, I, to this day, I cannot believe that I'm able to watch the Web of Fear. Mm-hmm. because to me it's an artifact of a culture that is now lost to us and it's the most wonderful culture ever mm-hmm. so and Troughton sort of epitomizes that for me although I will say there is nothing more wonderfully 60s than the William Hartnell doctor showing up at a disco in the war machines uh, absolutely <laughs> but and you, you know you know how I love that story too but, yes I do <laughs> you know it's uh, it's almost um, metaphorical, isn't it, or symbolic that Hartnell encounters the swinging sixties, and in the next season he dies and turns into Troughton, right? right? I mean, <laughs> you know, because it's like the first Doctor just can't hack it, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I always, whenever I see the very first Austin Powers in the early scenes, I always think about the scene from the War Machines with the Doctor. I don't know why I associate those two things together. I just always think of them at the same time. Well, I think one of the influences on Troughton that you don't really, that we don't talk about too much is um, Adam Adamant. Yes. Um, An incredible show. And stylistically, it really is strongly influencing that whole period of Troughton and then into early Pertwee. Mm-hmm. But the aesthetic of Adam Adamant is very much the aesthetic of season uh, five, really four, four and five, I would say. I completely agree. I mean, Patrick Troughton himself guested in an episode of Adam Adamant, which was yes. delightfully yes. fun. But yeah, definitely the, the visual aesthetic and the way it's shot. I think is to to your point, Mike, very much uh, reflected in seasons four and five. And then his sense of style, I think is what's really reflected in the third doctor. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, great, great show. It's worth watching what's left just to see from a historical perspective, the, the clear influence it had on this era of the show. My, my uh, DVDs of Adam Adamant are one of my most prized possessions. I, I just adore that show. But from my point of view, um, I actually, my first exposure to the second Doctor was with the five Doctors. I started mid-Tom Baker, was what my uh, PBS was showing. But they did a thing where once we got to Legopolis, then they had their pledge drive starting up. So they went from Legopolis to the five Doctors. Whoa. Because they wanted, you know, the pledge, you know. So it was kind of a weird path from the five doctors then back to Castro Valvo, but that's how it happened. And so that was my first exposure to uh, Troughton. Then when Troughton passed, they, I think we were in the middle of Colin Baker's run when Troughton passed. And so they did, I don't know why they chose it. I know that they didn't have many choices at that point, but they chose the dominators as the uh, thing where they just sort of broke the run and went to the dominators and showed that, you know, as sort of a tribute to Troughton. Was that? Was that ETV or was that out of Atlanta? No, no, no. I lived in Florida at the time. Oh, that was Florida. Orlando. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that was that was Orlando Public Television. Gotcha. Channel twenty four. Um, but uh, <laughs> still remember. But yeah, so they showed the Dominators. So at then at the time as a kid, I, I you know Dominators. Okay, he's a silly guy. I like it. You know, it's good. But uh, then the, they of course went back to Colin, and then at the end of his run though, they looped back to Hartnell. 
and then we watched everything through that they exist that existed through him. So I did get to see all of the Trout and Story, all five Trout and Stories that existed in their entirety at that time fairly soon after that so that's sort of how i came to him and yeah i uh you know he's definitely the silliest doctor out of those you know early doctors i think he had that that humor that sort of unassuming side the kind of character that could be overlooked very easily but then then you do get those scenes i mean one of the my favorite scenes with troughton is the confrontation with Klieg in tomb of the cybermen where he mm. just lets the guy go off on his rant. He just, you know, oh, you know, yeah. And he's like, oh, yes, you know, like, and, and it's just feeding him, you know, like, there'd be no one that could ever, like, you know, challenge, you know, your thoughts, your grandness, your vision. He's like, oh, yes, doctor. <laughs> you know, like, I, I wish I had known that you shared my vision, you know, and it just lets him, like, go off on his megalomania. And then the doctor's like, uh, you know, I just wanted to make sure you were mad, you know, and he completely, <laughs> like, changes on a dime. And I love that. I love that he can become that very steely kind of character very quickly and, you know, come from that position of moral rightness, you know, and I, I like that. I like that character. I like how his relationship is with Jamie and Zoe, especially. And I like that the way that they interact. And I think really that's where they sort of perfected the formula, even though I do love some of the earlier stories. I think that that trio was sort of the perfect distillation of Troughton and the best companions he could have played off of. So, yeah, I mean, I really like him. Like I say, I always feel like I have to protect Hartnell a little bit because <laughs> there's just so many people who, like, have these very strong opinions on the Hartnell era without watching many of the stories. And I'm always like, well, some of the things you think started with Troughton really didn't. And I think that Hartnell has some strengths that I don't think it acknowledged. But yes, Troughton is always a fun watch. And McCoy, I mean, uh, is so strongly informed by Troughton. He's another favorite of mine. Oh, and so, yeah, I, I, I really like that sort of a doctor. So, yeah, I mean, I think we've all brought up the missing stories a bit. So I'm just kind of curious about preferences because, you know, now we have a bunch of different ways to experience a lot of these. You know, a lot of them have been animated. And I know that, you know, but even for the ones that aren't animated, there are the CDs with narration and there are the telesnap reconstructions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Mike's, Mike's chuckling. So Mike, what way do you prefer experiencing missing stories? I, so far, the only way I have them on my hard drive, uh, cough, is... <laughs> You're perfectly legal and legitimate ways of watching these stories. Yep. <laughs> it's funny because so my heart my uh my trouton was a mixture of full colored or not colored but full blown recorded episodes and then the tele uh version and it's funny because every time my girlfriend like sat down at least try to watch it with me i'm like this is not how i want to introduce you to doctor who <laughs> yeah you're gonna sit here and watch yeah. this you're you're doing it to yourself i'm not pushing you or anything Right, that's for the hardcore fans. Yeah. So every time she said it, I was like, is this it? It's just still pictures? I'm like, yeah, these are like old recovered stuff. And then when she leaves the room, the next episode, fully full video. I'm like, what? <laughs> Why? <laughs> but yeah, so all I have is the majority of the trout that I have. It, it really is just still pictures and the words at the bottom saying, Jamie looked puzzled at the door. Mm. <laughs> like, thank you, subtitles. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> anime trained me well 
Yeah. Oh, I mean, I guess I should mention since I, I, you know, not everyone listening to this one may have seen or listened to the Hartnell one, but for anyone who doesn't know, the BBC and its wisdom decided that none of this stuff would ever be anything anyone would be interested in. And after they had sold episodes overseas or whatever, they decided, okay, they've lasted their life five years, I think was standard and some were continued on for a few more years after that. And so they decided, well, to free up space in our archives, we'll just junk. A lot of this material wasn't just Doctor Who, it was all their shows. I know the Avengers, the BBC 1960s Avengers series suffered from that also with most of its first season being gone. One point of order there, they weren't BBC. Well, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I just know they're missing. (laughs) I don't read books about the Avengers, I just read books about Doctor Who. (laughs) What it really speaks to is how widespread the archival losses are. And mm-hmm. let me tell you, speaking as a historian again, I know everybody loves that. <laughs> it's not uncommon for that stuff to happen even today. Mm-hmm. I, in fact, I've just run across a uh, treasure trove of local newscast recordings that were long thought lost. Mm. So, uh, I mean, this stuff, this stuff is happening all around us. Yeah. Although I think with most television programs, it doesn't happen anymore just because people realize that with nostalgia and streaming and video sales and whatever that uh, sure, sure, there's, there's potential. But I mean, this was something that was going on in Britain with television shows into the nineties and the early two thousands. There are kids TV shows that have missing episodes from that. Oh, I didn't realize it happened that late. I thought basically in the eighties it stopped. I've had friends who've recovered missing episodes to stations on VHS tape Hmm. that they recorded off air. So, yeah, definitely still went on. And what was interesting is mentioning the Avengers. The policy on what what was on the independent broadcasters in the UK, because they all broadcast over the same channel, ITV, but it was more of a, it was almost the regional system you have here, was each different studio. Uh, for want of a better term, or network, set their own recording or retention policy. So some shows for, that were ITV made, whether they were ABC, ITC, etc., are maintained better than others. Hmm. And it all depends on on who the production studio was. Well, and yeah, and for instance, some um, ITC, I, I gather uh, Lou Grade had a much stronger sense of the importance of what they were producing. So he was very forward thinking about retention and even things like uh, broadcast rights. So something like the prisoner that has all you need is love in it. Apparently he negotiated rights in perpetuity for that to be in that wherever it was broadcast. And um, that's, that is my understanding. And that's why when you see the prisoner, that last episode is never shown cut because it, it has the rights that go with it. Oh, if only they had had that foresight with Doctor Who and the Chase. Yeah, well, absolutely. <laughs> they squashed my favorite Beatles, Eric. They yeah, I know. Favorite Beatles. All right, but I mean. <laughs> so what's what's really interesting, I think, with the BBC is their own policy. So they have the majority of the Quatermass serials, with the exception of the first one, which was an experiment in telerecording and didn't work. So they only have the first two episodes anyway. But then there are broad swathes of Doctor Who that are missing, broad swathes of Out of the Unknown. Adam Adamant, most of the second season of that is missing, although most of season one exists. It almost seems a bit random as to either what was chosen to be destroyed 
or what has been recovered. Yeah, so I recently read Wiped, which was Richard Molesworth's uh, sort of research into the history of recoveries of Doctor Who stories and everything. Really great read. Yes, and so, yeah, I mean, a lot of what he was talking about is it wasn't necessarily even what the BBC was retaining. It was what was coming back from overseas after people realized that there was some value to this and, and it getting you know selected for saving by individuals within the BBC who may have been just acting on their own and things of that nature. So, I mean, there's so, there's a lot of different things going on here, but I think it speaks to the fact that the different arms of the BBC even weren't aware of what each side had, you know, because the division that sold internationally wasn't connected with the group that was actually making the programs and saving them for domestic use. And then right. they had a library division that was completely separate from them. And so all these different arms are acting in their own way for whatever they think is right. And their retention policy is not consolidated. Right. So I think that has something to do with it. Was there's a lot of confusion over what. And, the, and, and one of the things that was brought out was that the people in the other groups weren't necessarily aware that they had been junked by another group. So the people that were selling internationally didn't realize that the masters had been junked before. And so they thought that what was being returned from overseas had no value because it was just a copy. Now, it is nice having those stations out in places like Nigeria who right. don't follow the junking order and just keep it. And then Philip Morris finds it in you know 2012. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so what I was sort of getting to, though, in the explanation is that what's happened is beyond just finding things either in stations from other countries where they accidentally, maybe accidentally, retained <laughs> certain videos, <laughs> and also from people who worked at the BBC who apparently just decided to take random episodes home. <laughs> so, <laughs> leading to the idea that basically the BBC is full of just crooks and ne'er-do-wells. <laughs> now, if you want to get that conclusion, you need to read the JNT biography. <laughs> okay, all right, all right, no, 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 save it, save it for later. <laughs> so fans back then, this is before VCRs. In fact, I think what I read in Richard Molesworth's book is that the very first video recorders off television weren't available until 1968, so towards the end of Troughton's run. And that's something they've tried to see if anyone still has tapes that they might have recorded off air from the late 60s and so far have not found anything. But fans would record their favorite shows on audio. And those who are very technically sophisticated knew how to even get the straight output out of the antenna into an audio recorder so that instead of holding like a tape recorder up to your TV speaker, you're getting the straight audio feed off of the television. And we actually have a lot of quality recordings that people made from that time because they made these audio recordings and then just saved them. I think they're like five or six different sources that they have and people who recorded different episodes. Uh, but thankfully, they have all the way back to Marco Polo where people were already starting to record Doctor Who, and that's the first missing story. So all of the Troughton stories, all the Hartnell stories that are missing have an audio version that has been returned to the BBC. And from the fact that many of them have multiple sources, they're able to select the best for each segment of audio even and merge them together so that they have some pretty decent quality. And they're still finding more. Mm-hmm. So last year, a set of audio recordings from, I think, the middle of season three through to season five was uncovered and handed over to the BBC. Really? Uh, it was found that they were much better quality than a lot of what they had before. Any chance of the massacre being in better shape? 
I believe that was one of them, yes. I think it I was so. I think from about the mid part of Dalek's Master Plan through to the mm. end of, I think, season five. The BBC release of The Massacre was pretty rough. Yeah, and that's one that with the telesnaps that I have a hard time hearing. the uh, Or not telesnaps. I mean, it's a reconstruction, but it's not telesnaps because there are no telesnaps for the massacre. And so yeah. when we're talking about telesnaps. I guess the other thing I need to explain is that, that there was a guy named John Curry that would take photos, basically, of episodes as they were going. And it was something that he would sell to either actors or directors or anyone that wanted to have a portfolio of their work, basically. And for many Doctor Who stories, he did that. But I know when John Wiles was producer, he didn't have him working for them. So we don't have any of those ones like The Massacre, Dalek's Master Plan. There are no telesnaps for those. They have them for most of Troughton's run, but he passed away, I think, during The Mind Robber while that was being played so we don't have the invasion or the space pirates yeah that's sad it isn't the space pirates is the one that has like whole sets nobody knows what they look like i think mm -hmm. yeah the reconstructions they've done are very rough for that one because there's so yeah. little photographic evidence of any of that story but uh, yeah, anyway, sorry, that's just a lot of background to throw out there so people understand what we're talking about if they're, if they're just coming to this concept of missing stories for the first time or didn't know much about it. Um, but uh, so, Eric, what is your preferred way of experiencing those missing stories? Oh, gosh, uh, I'm, you know I'm a purist, um, <laughs> although I guess I'm not pure enough to go without narration. So mm. I tend to use the narrated CDs, mm -hmm. which at the time they came out were revelations. But I, I have been convinced to do the uh, reconstructions of late, and, and I've found them congenial. Uh, but there's something about the, I don't know, the mystique of listening to that stuff in the dark and, I don't know, uh, on long road trips. I guess it, what matters is that you can take them in any medium that you want. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've even contemplated buying some of the ones I like that actually do exist in visual form, like the gunfighters, just because it's so damn good. Well, yeah, I mean, there are certain stories. I, I imagine the Aztecs probably plays well on audio, and I know Marco Polo is one that just the dialogue is so good that I could definitely see, even though I do, I have, I actually have both versions of the loose can, you know, because they did a reconstruction, then the telesnaps were discovered, and then they did another reconstruction. But, you know, that's what I, I have experienced as a reconstruction. But uh, I can imagine Marco Polo, again, because the dialogue is so good. And because Lucarati, I think, was used to writing for radio, I think that a lot of the story stands well on its own without needing to see what's going on. Yeah, I, you know, I will say one thing. I, I really object to the cut down telesnap reconstructions that the BBC mm. put out. That really upsets me. Yeah, on Galaxy Four uh, when they yeah. when they did that. Yeah, no, I was because because actually I forget the name of the the gentleman, but he was one of the loose cannon people that did that for them, and he said he made a full reconstruction with the materials that they gave him, uh, and he did a, a, a scaled down one because they said to do both, and they actually chose between two and presented the scaled down one on the DVD, and I was really annoyed by that because if he made one that was full, I would have much rather saw that. I think his name was Derek Handley. Mm. And he also did a cut down um, of Marco Polo for that beginning DVD box set. Yeah, that was troubling too. Right, that one was very reduced. I think it was like a half an hour for the whole serial, wasn't it? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, that's way too much. 
Yeah. <laughs> At least with Galaxy 4, I think they just like cut it in half or something. But, uh, yeah. You know. I suppose that there's people out there who regard Doctor Who as not being the majestic creation that it is. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I just find it hard to imagine looking at something like Marco Polo and saying, yeah, three hours worth of this story could be cut out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh God. That's yeah. Well, we're not talking about the heart. I was going to start going off on how I love that story, but I'm going to, I'm going to table that for now. So uh, Anthony, what is your preferred way of experiencing those classic stories? Oh, I pull out my 16 millimeter film cans and put them on the projector. <laughs> You're the one. You're the one Philip Morris was talking about. <laughs> no. Um, so I, I've been watching the animations with curiosity lately. Mm. I have very mixed feelings about them. I don't like that they've started doing them in color. That seems mm. a little wrong to me. But I do like that they do offer a black and white option. Yes. So that offsets it uh so you know if you don't want to watch it in color you don't have to bizarrely i prefer the the telesnap reconstructions Mm. i really do um i feel like it's the closest thing we're going to get to actually being able to watch some of them at least for now you know by having images on the screen with a soundtrack Mm. i just want to try and recreate that experience as much as possible and i think that's the, the closest way to do it that said, I have the narrated audios and I have the animations where they've come out. So I'll, I'll watch or listen to or I'll experience them in any way possible to try and get a better idea of how it looked. Yeah, that's the same as me. I, I, I always own all of the different versions, even though I also prefer the Telesnap reconstructions. I mean, the, the, real, the real problem there is that those were put together by fans. And so sometimes the audio quality isn't sourced from the best masters or whatever. And sometimes it's hard to hear what's going on in the story. And I really wish that the BBC would do professional quality reconstructions of all of the stories that are missing so that we could get like the best possible audio. And they've started though, because they're now on the, um, on the Blu-ray editions, at least, of the animations they're coming out with. Certainly, the Macroterra and the Faceless ones have official BBC reconstructions. Oh, good. And they're full length? Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah, I haven't even bothered watching those. And they get the guy from Loose Cannon to do them. Oh, okay, nice, nice. And that's probably why Loose Cannon isn't doing anything anymore, because they stopped. Once they did their their re-release of Marco Polo with the Telesnaps, they haven't done anything since then, and that was quite a few years ago. Because I know originally they had been saying they were going to redo some of their early ones, but uh, that didn't happen. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the animations, I mean, I'm with you. I mean, the quality of the animation isn't the greatest. And, you know, some of the design is, I mean, of course, and, and I talk about this as if it's all one company that's done all of them, and it's not true. There's definitely been a great deal of variation with the style and the quality. I think most people agree that the Reign of Terror is kind of a horror show. <laughs> Even people who generally like the car, the animations. Oh god, yeah, that one's awful. <laughs> I really liked the invasion when it came out and they animated the two missing stories. Yep. And I think that the the Ice Warriors is the probably the closest to that one. And they all kind of range all around as far as that uh, goes. I, well, I, again, I have a point of order on that. The invasion, while exciting, I guess, at the time for what it was, Mm -hmm. it takes too many liberties. Yeah, I I don't like that they cut out stuff. No, no, I agree with that. And they they also had Vaughn's face on a big screen and stuff that would never have been... You know, I want want the 
cartoon to be as close to those telesnaps mm-hmm. as possible. Of course, there aren't any telesnaps for those, but you get the idea. Right. Don't watch the Macro Terror animation, then. You will hate that. Already did it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, now, and, and I will say, look, I'm really thrilled that they put those out. I mean, I'm and and I do watch them and I enjoy them. But one of the things I really wanted to see most was the scene where they all get their wash and brush up, like in the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, the snip, rumble snip here, snip snip there, and it's you know they cut it right. And so yes, that is the other reason I'm not a big fan of the animations is because I want it to be as complete as possible and as close as possible. Yep. Well, and, and there were legitimate reasons for why they did cut it. It was related to the models that they had to make. Why make models that they would only use once? And I get it, but it's just sort of frustrating. Well, the one in the invasion frustrated me because if you watch the DVD extra talking about the making of that animation, they're like, we just felt this scene went on too long, so we just decided to cut it. And I'm like, that's not a good enough reason. It had nothing to do with yeah. their ability to do it. They just decided it was boring, quote unquote. Yeah, nothing nothing with Sally Faulkner in it goes on too long anyway. <laughs> That's Isabel Watkins. Yeah. Including oh never mind. I'm gonna stop one. <laughs> <Yeah. ahead. laughs> <laughs> All right. So um Patrick Troughton, uh during his time as the doctor, he had two producers basically. I mean basically, I mean technically three. We have sort of the Innis Lloyd period in the beginning who had come in towards the end of Hartnell's run. And we have uh, the Peter Bryant period, uh, which starts towards the end of his run. And yes, I realize technically Derek Sherwin is producer on the war games, but it's kind of one of those, well, he was already script editor and it's kind of, they were kind of doing it together anyway. Is really like a take, you know, is it really a change or not kind of thing? But like, we sort of have like a unique feeling almost by season which is kind of weird because Ennis Lloyd extends into the middle of the fifth season for Troughton, but it feels like the fifth season is this sort of distinct entity from the fourth season. So I'm just kind of curious about thoughts about that. Anthony, uh, do you feel like the Troughton series is very distinctive for each season, or do you feel that it's a little more complicated than that? No, I I think saying it's distinct is is valid. I mean, you look at the first season, so season four, it's like you and I have had this conversation over, over instant messaging before, mm-hmm. you know, it, it feels very B-movie. Mm-hmm. Then the second season is effectively the same story repeated over and over, just with different monsters each time, and that's the base under mm-hmm. siege, with the exception of Enemy of the World. The glorious exception. Exactly. And then the <laughs> final season, I love the Enemy of the World. Yes. The, the, the final season to me, is where it gets to be a bit more like the Hartnell era. It's a bit more experimental. You get some weird stories in there. You get some, you get at least one story that's easily as boring as the Censorites. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, they start to do weird things again. Um, and yeah, I, I would completely agree with that assessment. Each one does feel like its own monster, for want mm. of a better term. And Mike, did you get that impression when you were watching it? Do you, I mean, I, you probably don't even like pay attention to where the seasons begin or end, but did you get sort of the feeling like the show sort of like goes through stages? No, I did not get that at all. Okay. <laughs> did you notice towards the middle of Troughton's run that it seemed like a lot of times they were just stuck in an isolated place surrounded by some creature or other? I thought it was for all episodes. Oh, okay. <laughs> I have to say, I didn't really much enjoy the pirate one. Oh, yeah. Very few people enjoy the pirate one. (laughs) 
I said, as boring as the sensor <laughs> Except for Milo Clancy. <laughs> Comes in to be funny for a little bit. Eric, how do you feel about this sort of idea? Do you feel like the Troughton era has like three sort of distinct sections, or do you think it's a little more complicated than that? No, I, th- I think you're, I mean, I think it's a pretty accurate description. I always sort of bridle at the idea that season five is the same story over and over and over, but it, it probably is. It's so exciting to me that I don't really care if it is the same story. I just love it. Yeah. The one thing about season six that I think is interesting is the way that it's really looking forward. And the War Games is a very special story. It's like, it's a story that has just dropped into the middle of that seat, well, the end of that season. It's so unlike everything that goes before it. And I, I, it's, it's almost its own entity. I don't know. I'm not making a very good, I'm not describing this very well, but it's, it's very modern. It's very uh, self-conscious mm-hmm. of, of what, what it's doing in the series. And it's so, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure where I'm going with that. But anyway, yes, three separate seasons. So it's interesting that you bring that out because, I mean, the War Games is a personal favorite of mine. I know there are a lot of people that say it's too long. And honestly, I don't know how they did so well with 10 episodes because I find it pure joy to watch. It is something I can binge watch all 10 in a single sitting. Yep. It's that good. Now, a lot of times I do break it up into two, but if I can, if I have the time, I can watch the whole thing in one. In fact, there were several times like on vacation from school, because that was one of the early VHS ones that I had, where I would do that, is I would just sit and watch the war games over the course of an afternoon or something. So, you know, that's, and it's interesting, because, and then also we have the invasion which when you talk about looking forward and being forward thinking is that this is sort of like, let's try out something that we're thinking of doing with the show and seeing how it works. And of course the funny thing is as much of the things that they, is that, the, that they introduce in the invasion, the Pertwee era isn't anything like it except for the trappings of units, <laughs> <laughs> but it was supposed to be the prototype for the show going forward. So let's just go back to the war games for a second okay. and just comment about how, absolutely insane what they were trying to do with that story in that what they had originally wanted for that slot had completely fallen through. Mm-hmm. I think Terrence Dix and Matt Holt got together, wrote the entire thing over the space of, I think it was a week. I like to think that, you know, they probably downed a couple of bo- bottles of scotch <laughs> while doing it, but that's you know, my creative license. Mm-hmm. And hammered out something that theoretically should have been a nightmare to film given the number of changes, you know, mm-hmm. location changes, set changes, etc. Extremely ambitious story, and it works so well. It's wonderfully directed, it's well acted, the plot is, is astounding, and how they pulled it off, I just don't know. And Philip Maddock in a role where you would have no idea it was him except for the voice. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> Because he looks so different from how he looks in every other time he appears on Doctor Who. He is a sort that of beautiful, beautiful, slight Welsh lilt. Oof. It is truly an epic. And in fact, it's more epic than even Master Plan, which is mm-hmm. sort of self consciously epic. But the War Games is just this desperate. It's, it's like Androzani, only 10 episodes. Mm-hmm. And the, the desperation that Troughton is at by the end of it is is palpable. It's truly an amazing piece of work. Completely agree. 
Yeah, I hear people say, like, uh, you know, sometimes in some of the books that review various Doctor Who stories, they're like, oh, War Games should have only been four episodes. And I'm like, how do you do that in four episodes? Yeah. <laughs> I think you would have been leaving a lot. I mean, maybe you could have cut an episode from it. You know, I mean, but uh, it stands so well with 10 that, that I'm fine with it as it is. Well, it, you know, if they'd cut it, you would have lost all the character pieces mm-hmm. and all the, the sort of variety and scope of what the warlords or whatever they are the aliens mm-hmm. were doing whereas at 10 episodes you you gradually unfold this enterprise that they're up to and you see the roman part and the mexican civil war part and a revolution part and the american civil war and and it's you know the scope of that is what's important about the story in a way and if you cut it down to four episodes, you're just going to have Doctor Who looking out a window and seeing the map of the war or something. And yep. you really need that breathing room. Well, it's interesting you talk about unfolding because they were very good about how they just dropped like another segment of what's making this important in as the story goes. So you think it's something where they're in World War One. Then it's like, okay, and there's some weird stuff happening in World War One. Well, that's okay. We've had pseudo-historicals before, you know, some sort of alien influence, whatever. And then it becomes clear that, wait a minute, now we're in Roman times? And then you sort of get the idea of, okay, maybe there's some interconnected times here. And then it's sort of like, no, we're actually on an alien planet where they've recreated these wars. And now we get to one of the people helping them is one of the, one of the doctor's people. And we just keep on spiraling through like the story that they very carefully like escalate as it goes along. And so even understanding the limitations and understand, I mean, they were able to craft the story so that it holds interest across the whole thing instead of just saving everything for the last episode or two, like a lot of the longer ones do. Yeah. Um, and just as an aside, in my mind, it's such a shame that David Savile has not really wanted to have much to do with Doctor Who because he is incredible in that story. And in my head, he and Lady Jennifer meet up back in England <laughs> and they become basically sci-fi crime fighters like the Avengers together. <laughs> Very nice. La- Lady Jennifer is the Mrs. Peel of ni- the 1920s. Well, you know, Terrence Dix at least wrote that they did get married afterwards. And so as far as I'm concerned, since he put that in a novel, it's, it's as true or canon as anything. <laughs> the uh, their relationship is so real. I mean, I, I I don't know. It's she is so great anyway. I'm I'm she's one of my Doctor Who crushes. <laughs> what can I say? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, she's she's a woman in the mold of Barbara, and you can't get much better than Barbara, right? No, you can't. <laughs> All right. So let's talk a little bit about the companions because we have Ben and Polly at the beginning and Jamie joins soon afterwards. And so we have that sort of fourth season with the three companions going back to that sort of Hartnell, very large TARDIS crew kind of thing. Ben and Polly leave, we get Victoria with Jamie. And then finally we get the Zoe and Jamie dynamic at the end. And I've already said that I kind of think I find that season six grouping to be the best, more sort of a perfect distillation of Troughton. But, I'm kind of curious about how other people feel as far as what was your favorite companion crew uh, with the second doctor, but also just pick one particular companion that you want to say this, this person, this is my favorite out of the Troughton era. Eric, let's start with you. Oh gosh. Uh, you don't want to start with me on this one. <laughs> <laughs> Ask Mike or Anthony. Oh, okay. Well, we haven't started with <laughs> you yet. We, we'd started with Anthony or we'd started with Mike. 
All right. So Mike, who is your favorite or what, when, what, which was your favorite grouping? Oh, Nathan, the second doctor's companions can only really be described as an ode to Scottish muscles. (laughs) (laughs) Jamie coming on. First off, Jamie is my favorite. Absolutely love Jamie because every time something heavy or needs muscles, we'll go to the Scotsman. And it was fantastic. Every time I heard, Jamie, open this door. I can't open it. Like, oh, <laughs> what's Jamie going to do? going to put some spinach into the kilt? What's going on here? <laughs> but no, I do agree that um, Jamie and Zoe, those two together was, was much better than Jamie and Victoria, in my opinion. Mm. Uh, Zoe, I always felt, was too smart for her own britches. But, you know, what are you going to do being that damn smart? But no, but Jamie is by far just, <laughs> I love that guy. <laughs> and, and he is one of the most successful like companion doctor you know pairings because like sarah jane i think uh was a little bit longer and yes. uh, other than that i think that really episode wise i'm sorry tegan is tegan episode wise because they did a lot fewer per year then well i don't know but she was there for three or three or four years well three so. yeah no two and a half yeah whatever but yeah and so jamie he's he's there two and a little more than a half but episode wise he's i think uh possibly i think sarah jane beats him by a couple episodes or something but yeah i mean definitely up there with tegan and sarah jane as one of the most successful doctor companion times so eric uh, do, do i need to leave you for last or can you answer the question now well i'm gonna disappoint you a little bit um <laughs> that's why i sort of i i feel a little bad saying this but i'm 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 going to don't get me wrong. I love them all, mm-hmm. right? So it's sort of like picking the child you like the best or worst or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I would kill to have any of these episodes back. However, I think that Troughton gets a bit of a raw deal with his companions. Mm. I love Fraser Hines and I love Jamie sort of as a general sense. But I think that Jamie's around too long. Mm. And I, there's a sense really that he's... It's really Doctor Who traveling with Fraser Hines rather than... <laughs> <laughs> Jamie McCrimmon. I love Victoria, but I can't stand her. <laughs> I like Zoe a lot, but meh. Really, if I had to pick any of them, Ben and Polly are probably the best. But I despise what they did with Ben's character in season four. Mm-hmm. I mean, they basically make him into a jerk. Mm-hmm. And so you're basically down to Polly now, and there really isn't a whole lot to work with there as a character. So I think. I I just if I had my druthers, I think I would have had a different companion in there. But I don't really know who that would be. Maybe uh, Pauline Collins. I mean, you know, there's that sort of great what if of what if Sam had been in the ship with them. But none of them really do it for me. I'm mm-hmm. sad to say. Uh, there there's no Liz Shawls in there that I don't know. I mean, they're great. Don't get me wrong. No, no flutey jazz music. No, no flutey <laughs> jazz music. <laughs> No amazing grace. <laughs> and, no. and it's in all seriousness, it's not about sex appeal or whatever, because they're all very good looking people. Mm-hmm. But it's just I don't think they make for very compelling characters. And actually Liz Shaw gets kind of ruined too, so you know, we'll come <laughs> to that when we come to it. Right. But she's got way less time on screen to be ruined, you know? Mm-hmm. Whereas you see Jamie kind of being Fraser Hines in space for three seasons running, you know? Mm. 
and I just think that a little bit more variety and a little bit more um, character would have helped them. Okay. Interesting. I thought for sure you were going to go with either Ben or Polly, just knowing you as I do. Well, I would go with Polly, mm. but I'd be thinking of Liz. <laughs> Come on now. Oh, you cad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anthony, um, how about you? Oh, it's Jamie. Mm. There's, there's no doubt on that. I mean, my enjoyment of Jamie as a companion is well known. Um, if you pick up the compilation of essays, Children of Time, um, which is a, a collection of essays on the companions of Doctor Who, I wrote the chapter on Jamie. So, I mean, Jamie, I think, is, is one of the best companions that the Doctor has ever had. A perfect foil for the second Doctor. And the two of them develop this really strong, healthy male friendship which you look at male friendships in the 21st century, I think that's the model for how we should all look to form our friendships. It's very close, but not at all inappropriate. And in terms of whom he worked best with, I mean, I'm, I'm with yourself and Mike. It's, it's Jamie and Zoe. I think Victoria screams a little too much and uh, mm. can be kind of annoying. Ben and Polly, again, with so much of season four missing, it's not the grouping I grew up with. Mm-hmm. And one of my first Doctor Who stories, I, I alluded to it earlier, but was the mind robber. So seeing Jamie and Zoe together was one of my earliest memories of Doctor Who. So there's probably a nostalgia factor in that for me as well. Yeah, I can't divorce that because, I mean, obviously when I was growing up, all the existing stories were from season six. So Jamie and Zoe were sort of the natural companions for the second Doctor because that's all that I had available. Then Tomb of the Cybermen got returned. And so I saw Victoria in that. Then I was watching Reconstructions much later, and so I got her on audio. And then, of course, Enemy of the World and Web of Fear have been returned since then. So I've got to see a few more of her stories. I have sort of a crush on Victoria. I think Deborah Watling was gorgeous. But yeah, as far as a character, I don't think that she was really... Yeah, I mean, they didn't do a whole lot with her. Unfortunately, Fury from the Deep, her final story is where it's like, oh, maybe we should develop Victoria a little bit. You know? <laughs> well, that's the end. Okay. And yeah, I don't think there's a whole lot there with Ben or Polly either. I think that they came in strong with the War Machines, but I don't feel like they were really developed much and there wasn't a lot there character-wise. So yeah, for me, because what you have with Jamie, Zoe, and the Doctors, you've got these very distinct personalities, which is why I think they work so well together. Because you have Jamie as the sort of thick, muscle-bound guy, but with a heart of gold, you know, you've got yeah, okay. Zoe as the very, you know, assertive, very confident in herself, very intelligent person. And you have the doctors we've already talked about as sort of this cosmic hobo who's also very smart, but he has these sort of lazy tendencies that are kind of at odds with how Zoe is. So you get these very nice, distinct personalities and how they interact with each other. And even though there isn't a lot of development per se, that they don't change a lot over the course of that season, just having those three and having their dynamic, whereas the dynamic for Victoria with Jamie and the Doctor is very much a Jamie and the Doctor are protective of Victoria. Victoria has a very you know, it's it's very much a, a lesser role to the two of them, whereas Zoe comes in very dominant. And so each of the three characters has their distinct role. Yeah, it's... Uh, yeah. They're, I, I love all of those characters. I, I was first introduced to um, 
Victoria, I believe, because uh, Victoria and Jamie, because I think the first second doctor I ever saw was uh, of the era was um, Abominable Snowman 2 mm. on uh, the, the Troughton years. Mm. Which is why I can't ever watch The Enemy of the World without thinking of it as The Enemy of the World. Because that's how hurt <laughs> we uh, introduced it. But I don't know. The mystique of that season four, season five thing puts Victoria and Ben and Polly up above Zoe to me. Mm. I just want to slap Zoe a lot of the time. Even though she's <laughs> awesome. <Wow. laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I think one thing is clear here, and that is you people have no taste. Oh, oh well, <laughs> well, friend of the show, Wendy Padbury. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say her performance was bad. I don't like. I, I love them all. It's just, sure. I just they don't. They have these tissue thin characters, and I don't know. It's just I would wish for something a little bit more something. I don't. Mm. I'm going to shut up now. Sure. <laughs> I will throw out Wendy Padbury is a complete darling. She is someone who I asked her cold for an interview at a convention and was gracious enough to give me her time. I think the world of her, she and my daughter have this sort of funny rapport because she's been to Chicago TARDIS now several times. And so she keeps seeing my youngest daughter and they have an interaction. And my youngest cosplayed as Zoe when she was like three or four. And so Wendy is just, like, that was the cutest thing. And Did you so, put her in silver, silver lame? It was, it was the cat suit version. Yes, it was. <laughs> it was easy fabric for Beth to source and it was an easy costume to do. So yes, she was, she was doing the, the mind robber costume. Yes. Uh, Wendy Padbury seems awesome. I, and, and yeah. they all do. I just, it's it, from a fictional standpoint, I think their characters are a little, I'm just going to stop talking because I can't escape from this. <laughs> you said that you would slap her. <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't slap her any harder than Victoria because oh. <laughs> she just needs to stop screaming. No. But yeah, so I'm going to say because of all that, that Zoe's my favorite, even though it probably really is Jamie. But hey, the, you know, Mike and Anthony already picked Jamie, so I'm going to say Zoe. <laughs> but I like it, though, because I mean, again, this is one of these things, and it's something that various people connected with continuing Doctor Who in various ways have said. I'm not going to name any names, but the whole idea that the 60s was this sort of misogynistic period in Doctor Who, which you kind of, kind of ignores Verity Lambert being the first producer and kind of ignores Zoe as a character in season six. But that's the thing. I feel like Zoe is such a great character. Because, and this is something that Wendy and I did talk about when I interviewed her, is that Zoe doesn't need to say feminism rah, 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 because she just goes about being a competent character and just does it. You know, she just shows by action. And I think that Zoe is such a great character from that standpoint, too. I mean, she's even, like, physically strong throwing the carcass around and, like, drop her, you know, which is such <laughs> a fun scene. Where you think this little tiny girl is not going to be able to stand up to this guy, and she's just like throwing him over her shoulder and stuff. It's great. <laughs> I mean, it's it's feminism in very much the same way as you have it with Barbara, with just yes. an absolutely kick-ass female character that you can't help but admire. Hmm. That's fair enough. I really resist this notion of the '60s being this sort of misogynistic period, as you know, as a whole. The '60s as an umbrella term, because they were very. I, I think Doctor Who was a very forward-thinking and very uh, 
progressive series uh, for its time. And certainly there might have been very small periods within that window where things weren't that way. Young Wiles. I was giving you the opening there, Anthony. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> but I do think overall it tends to be progressive. I think you're right about that. I, I don't know if it's progressive, but I, I think within the boundaries of the time period, the existing values, women are very liberated in Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Even the idea that there's kind of a patriarchal attitude towards them, I think is not really true. The only person that Hartnell was especially patriarchal towards was Susan, and he was her grandfather. I mean, mm-hmm. but I don't, I can't think of any of the others really being like that, except possibly Polly, but she sort of put herself in that position mm-hmm. where she sort of says, Well, I'm just going to go make you some tea now. Right. Which I think is actually a mistake, but that was what Annika Wills seems to have wanted to play. I mean, I, you know, Polly should have been the Mrs. Peel of the 60s, right? Mm-hmm. But instead, she's sort of a coward and whatever else. Yeah. Ooh, here's a spin-off for you. Barbara is the Kathy Gale, followed oh. by Polly as the Mrs. Peel. <laughs> oh, oh, Anthony, you are so singing my song. <laughs> <laughs> because actually, Kathy Gale is where it's at, really. Oh, 100%. I'm with you there. I mean, when you're a teenager... Emma Peel is the sort of whatever you want to call it, the, mm-hmm. the, yeah. the dream. But when you grow up, Kathy Gale is who you want. You see, I've never seen any of the older ones because the uh, cable station that showed it when I was young only showed Emma Peel and Tara King. So those are the only two that I've ever seen. Yeah. No, Kathy Gale is a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. is Mrs. Peel, but she's been dumbed down sort of as a character i mean i it, c- just to take a quick aside here because we are talking about feminism and women and companions and stuff mm-hmm. one of the interesting things i think about honor blackman's career is it is a real step down for her to have taken pussy galore as a care as a role mm-hmm. and um you know kathy gale is so much better as a companion and anthony's spot on i mean she really is barbara wright with jujitsu <laughs> now i'm imagining barbara doing jujitsu <laughs> oh i i me too <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i mean i was going to say they both have the last name right so you never know they could be related well true <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those fan very you know very fan things of actually polly is barbara's niece or something so yeah Favorite cereals, Eric. Since we we keep we haven't started with you yet, and I want to start with you, you got to pick just one. What is your ah. Trouton story that that is your absolute favorite? Man, I hate you. <laughs> I, I mm, can I do two? No, after everybody else goes, you can pick a second one because <laughs> I don't want you to take somebody else's. If, you know, I, I don't give you two chances to take somebody else's. God, if if I had to go to a desert island with only one Trouton story, sure. it would have to be the War Games. Do I have to explain why? No, because I think we already talked about the War <laughs> Games, so I think we I think we got that. Okay, no, no, that's good. Anthony, favorite Trouton story? Ooh. So before 2013 and after 2013, <laughs> my answers are different. Okay, well, we'll so pick you your current me- one. If you'd asked me, well, okay, currently it's it's the enemy of the world. I, I um, figured that's where you're going. I have never 
reevaluated a story in the same way I did with that one when it returned. So I remember doing a watch through of the entire show in 2011, 2012. And I found The Enemy of the World through the Telesnap reconstruction to be extremely difficult to watch. It was like walking through quicksand or through mud or something. You know, it was just slow. It was a challenge. And I remember the night it hit iTunes. I stayed up, downloaded that and, and web and watched all uh. six parts before I went to bed, even though I had to get up like four hours later to go to work. Uh, what happy, heady days. <laughs> oh, yes. And I was amazed at how compelling that story was and how good, well made. It just really drew me in. And even on rewatches, it still holds up. And I think it's really, really um, benefited from coming back in terms of its reputation and, and how it's improved from actually being able to see it. Mm. So I, I, I'm going to go with that. It's funny, you and Eric have already picked my top two. That's fine, though. That's fine. Uh, Sorry, dude. <laughs> but that's why I let everybody else go first. So, you know. <laughs> but yeah, no, I agree with you about the reevaluation. Enemy of the World uh, as a reconstruction, I did not think all that highly of it. It was when I actually saw it and just saw how good it was and how, how really visually good it was, too. I mean, it wasn't just oh, yeah. the story and the performances. It was like they spent a lot of money on that one. I love Faria. Mm. One of the best characters ever. Why didn't they make her a companion? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. I mean, what a great character. Well, I mean, and then, and, I mean, her death scene is powerful. I mean, you feel for this woman. Yeah. I remember like, like watching that and feeling the sorrow of her death in a way that as an, as a reconstruction, I never did. So yeah, no, it's, it's a very good pick. Mike. Do you have a favorite from your watch through? <laughs> I didn't know it was going to be my favorite, only, but it is only because it connected to Matt Smith, and that is the Abominable Snowman. Mm. Because, because, so my history really begins with watching Christopher Eccleston, The Ninth Doctor, and, I, and from then on to Tennant to Smith, that's when I started watching one, the series 1 through 26. Mm -hmm. And so watching the abominable snowman, it's like, it's campy. It's like, Oh my God. Yeah. He's wow. It's really cool. And then here comes the great intelligence. And in a flick of a memory, he's like, wait a minute, the Christmas episode. <gasps> what? Just the first episode. He came from here. He's not an original. Oh my God. And I was just completely <laughs> enthralled into the abominable snowman. It's like, yep. Great intelligence. Cool. Awesome. I mean, yeah, that's one I would really appreciate having back. Yeah, me too. Mainly because I don't want that horrible The Snowman episode to be the final statement on the intelligence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Mike. <laughs> no, it's okay. Because <laughs> when... Because that was... It was a, a complete throw, throw to me. It's like, wait a minute. He came from this, from this Yeti thing? And they're following him? Like, oh, okay. This is how you want to control the world? Cool. And then... Like immediately as soon as I saw I finished that, I went back to Matt Smith to the Christmas episode with the great intelligence. I'm like, okay, Sir Ian McKellen, let's do this. Let's let's bring let's bring it together. <laughs> but yeah, it, 
I mean, it definitely should be my, my favorite episode technically should be the tomb of the Cybermen, but it really is the connection with the great intelligence from Patrick's era all the way now to an episode with Matt Smith for the Christmas episodes like that. I love that Christmas episode and the, uh, the identity and the thought of the great intelligence and just seeing that it originated again, there was another character that was thrown back from the original series. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, just, it just really connected. Yeah. I, and I will say, I will say this to that point, Mike, this is one of the things that I think makes Doctor Who so special is that you do have this voluminous history and things, I mean, of course, when, when I was coming up, it was stuff in the 80s, right, mm-hmm. that connected back to stuff 25 years ago. But now we're up to the point where stuff is connecting back to 50 years ago, and there's a depth to the series that I think just makes it so special and rewarding when you come to it at any point. And you can go on to these adventures deep into the history of the series. It's very, very exciting. Yeah, yeah. That that's one of the things that I you know really loved about the show because when I was a kid, uh, when it, my very first earliest memories of Doctor Who, there were no VHS tapes yet, at least not over here. And so it was whatever was on PBS, and we did start recording some of them at some point. And and so some of them I did get to keep, although my parents re-recorded over most of them. But, you know, I, I did have a few episodes that especially after we moved and we moved somewhere that didn't show Doctor Who, that we had still a couple on tape that I was like, OK, these two are being preserved because it's all <laughs> I have now. But I would read the novelizations. And that was my way of being able to experience the older stories and even the missing stories. Because when I was a kid, you know, we looped back through Hartnell and I was like, wait a minute, the ending of The Edge of Destruction does not match up with the beginning of The Keys of Marinus. What happened there? You know, and I was very confused and then, you know, eventually learned that there were missing stories, but then finding out that there were novelizations of almost every Doctor Who story, even at that point in the late 80s. And then they finished up the rest of them over the course of the next few years. But, you know, being able to go and read through that history, and even though I since learned that some of them don't quite match the stories that they were writing, you know, there were various liberties taken by the writers and whatnot. I got most of the story that way of what was missing. And, and that was one of the joys for me is being able to go back into that and like sort of like go through reading the Peter Haining books, which, yes, I realize aren't the best history, but it was all I had at the time and learning <laughs> so much about Doctor Who from those. And then, you know, being able to read the novelizations and get some of those stories I was missing. That was like some of like the fun of Doctor Who was sort of like mining through that history and figuring out the stuff that I was missing and seeing the conclusions people drew in things like the program guide and stuff like that about, you know, how this all fit together and things like that. And so I kind of like that. You and I had remarkably similar experiences, Nathan. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I found from us talking and, and from hearing you talk on your show, Anthony. Is, yeah, I, it, it's funny. It's separated by the Atlantic Ocean, but uh, kind of similar. Because yeah. I always think that people who grew up in England, it's like, oh, well, you had all of Doctor Who available to you. And it was just, you know, easy. But, you know, I guess it, it was not as easy as I thought. I think we were more lucky in that respect because it was on PBS on a loop almost. Although I found that in other areas, even though for you and I, Eric, our areas showed through Hartnell and stuff, most people that I've talked to said that their areas only showed Perchwee and Tom Baker and then looped back to Perchwee, and that's all they ever showed. Yes. MPT did that in the mid-90s also, but Mm. they were really very careful in how they handled the show. And and in any event, they they repeated only a few stories in Britain, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was true of the BBC, but by the time we really had cable, we had a channel called UK Gold, Mm. which did Doctor Who more or less on a loop. And that was how I came to a lot of stories before they were officially released on VHS. 
Yeah, I think we all became experts in um, videography. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I had yeah. a video library bigger than Hugh Hefner's. I mean, you know, all, it was all off-air TV because I think one of the things that I sort of, the conclusions I reached quite early on was that there was no guarantee you were ever going to see any of this stuff again. Mm. You know, that included American-made stuff too. But, you know, I had a pretty elaborate Who library when I was in my early teens because of this. Yeah. No, no, I, I agree. I mean, and then that's, I mean, it's kind of funny. I, I, I sent Anthony, I think, some pictures at one point of my collection because it's like, I've got a whole bookshelf, a bookshelf that extends from floor to ceiling of just Doctor Who books. And that's, yep. you know. <laughs> and, Me too. And then I've got all the big finished shelves. <laughs> you know, that have all the audio CDs that I have. And then I've got my DVD shelves that have all my, you know, Dr. Who DVDs. So it's like, you know, it's funny because I was talking with Tim Trelore the other day and he was saying, talking about how like, oh, Dr. Who fans must all be rich. And I'm like, oh, you got to realize this is like spread out over my entire life. You know, it's like, I'm not rich. It's just like, this is 35 years worth of collecting. Yeah. Au contraire, we're all poor. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, or at least a good afternoon of 500 gigs. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, my parents used to give me a gift for like a good report card and, uh, you know, all A's and B's. And so I would, I, a lot of times what I wanted was the Peter Haining hardcover Doctor Who books. <laughs> They're like, you sure you don't want a video game or something? I'm like, no, I want the hardcover book, you know? <laughs> It's expensive. It's like 25 bucks. <laughs> Which Peter Haining are we talking about? The writer, he wrote a bunch of books in the no, 80s. No, no, like Doctor no, Who's I don't mean, no, I know him, but I, which book? Oh, uh, I have, I have six of them, I think. I have the Doctor Who file, Doctor Who a Celebration, Doctor Who 25, I'm looking backwards at my bookshelf, which is behind me. Doctor Who 25 Glorious Years. I have three or four of those, but the one that I was obsessed with for some strange reason was The Key to Time, mm -hmm. which was for a period there, like the number one public TV gift that they gave when you subscribed. I mean, number one among Doctor Who people. And I could never convince my folks to send any money to MPT so <laughs> I could get that damn book. <laughs> I was an adult. I was in my 20s before I got my own copy of that book. And I treasure it still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that was the first one I got was the Doctor Who file. And, and I never remember it being done on a pledge drive. Um, they were always doing things like you can have your very own Doctor Who scarf or something along those. Like, it was always a, a Doctor Who hat. It was never something as good as a book. Now, MPT was pretty good about all that. And we had uh, Tom Baker and Sophie Aldred came in 1990, I think, and were part of that. And I mean, it was pretty big in Maryland for a while. Hmm. Anyway, that's a long way yeah, off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry. Just to talk about the fact that Doctor Who's history is... But see, I've never found a problem with having a long-running series. It's one of the reasons why I liked comics when I got into comics was because there was 50 years of, you know, Marvel backstory, even in the 90s, that I could go mining, and I thought that that was fascinating. So, you know, whatever. Now everybody's going to reboot everything every five years. To go back to the pledging for just a second, one of my vivid early fandom memories was when Tomb came back. And in August of 92, I think it was, it was shown on MPT. I hate you. I, I know. I mean, it was, it was very exciting stuff. And I, thankfully, I was far enough into fandom at the time that I knew 
the significance of what I was watching. Mm. And I mean, I remember just being spellbound by that, especially since I think it was in 88 or 89, David Banks had come out with his Cyberman book, Mm -hmm. which is one of my very favorite books ever. Talk about firing the imagination of a, of a kid. Mm -hmm. And I had picked that up maybe in the summer of 90. So I had sort of read all that and internalized the fact that we were never, ever going to see Tomb again, (laughs) in all capital letters. And then be damned if a year later or whatever, here it is on my TV. (laughs) Uh, That was incredible. Uh, And only only outmatched by the discovery of the Web of Fear, Hmm. which to me was the most important Doctor Who discovery of probably of my fandom years anyway. Yeah, that David Banks Cyberman book. I love it so much, and I'm annoyed that Big Finish has thrown out his whole chronology. But anyway, uh, (laughs) the novel's got it right. You should use that. But anyway, so yeah, I mean, getting so the whole reason I was bringing up novelizations and everything besides talking about stories is because that was my first way of experiencing Tomb of the Cybermen because it was lost when I was a kid. I actually knew about Tomb's recovery because even though by that point we had moved to South Carolina, the place that was one of the first places in the country to pull Doctor Who. And so when we moved there in 1990, there was no Doctor Who on PBS. <laughs> <laughs> I can I can hear the loathing in your voice, Ugh, man. South Carolina, <laughs> man. I refer to uh, those years on, as my man. exile. <laughs> I'm still here, man. 14 years in exile. <laughs> if you were Doctor Who in, in that scenario, I think I was the master. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I had gotten out of prison. <laughs> uh, so I'm just the companion that's stuck here. Thanks. Yeah, you're the companion <laughs> that stayed, Mike. You're you're my Joe Grant. <laughs> <laughs> but wow. no, so so this is this is my crazy story. So my dad was thankfully an enabler for my Doctor Who habit. He was someone who, before I started watching, was sort of vaguely familiar with Doctor. He'd seen, like, the odd story or something in the past. He was the one, because they showed it at 10 o'clock at night in my local PBS station, so he would record them for me so I could watch them the next morning. But once we moved to South Carolina and I was kind of cut off, he would actually go on the message boards of the day to Who, and he would actually print them at his work. So he would print as many of the threads as he could while he was there at work and then he'd take them home so that I could actually read through them because we didn't have a computer at home and read through like whatever was going on and, you know, like various things that were happening. And so uh, because of that, I'd only learned a lot because there were a lot of people from England that were contributing to that message. So I learned about things like Blake 7 and whatnot from that. But I also learned about what was happening, you know, in news. So that's how I learned about the novels. Uh, the New Adventures was from that. And that's how I also learned that Tomb of the Cybermen had been returned. And so, again, because of the whole deal of if I had a, a good report card, my parents would buy me something. I had, I trolled the video stores. <laughs> <laughs> Until we found one that had some Doctor Who stuff and they actually had to him because that was the hot thing that, you know, they kind of rushed it to VHS when it was found. And so that's how I got it was that was one of my early VHS stories was Tomb of the Cybermen. So, yeah, and that is my favorites of the ones that are left. <laughs> so I love Tomb. I think that Tomb is phenomenal. Everything from the scene with the Doctor in Victoria 
to Dr. Confronting Klieg, to the Cybermen, all these people who are like, oh, but Tomb was so disappointing once we actually got to see it. They can go stuff it. <laughs> I know. I, I don't understand this. To me, it's just as exciting as I imagined it would be. I mean... yeah. The performances are great. The, 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 the main, the, the only thing that I would say, yeah, that was kind of crappy is when Toberman's throwing the cyber controller around and it's obviously an empty mannequin. Oh, poo. Who cares about that? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't look good. The cyber mats look so much better than the ones in Revenge. I mean, they look so much better than the ones in Closing Time. Mm. Doesn't everything look better than what was in Closing Time? Oh. <laughs> oh. The only disappointment for me in Tomb is and I hate to say this, but George Rubacek, who mm. is um, Captain Hopper. No, mm -hmm. Captain Hopper, is that right? Yeah, it's Hopper. Yeah. Or, or are they in a space hopper? I no, no, no. he's Captain Hopper, or is it Captain Harper? It's, it's something like that, yeah. Well, anyway, his fake American accent is unpleasant. <laughs> I want my skin fitting around me all tight. <laughs> <laughs> no. You know, there's this sort of cry of racism on Tomb of the Cybermen, but the people who say that ignore the fact that Toberman's the most likable character out of the whole group. <laughs> you know, it's like, of all these people, you've got the willfully ignorant, the cowards, the actually outright evil people. Toberman's got, like, a sense of honor. You know, like, he's a decent stand-up guy. It's just he's following the wrong person. It's like, I don't really find that racist. I think he's great. It's the other people who all deserve to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I can't even get off onto that subject. I'm I'm so upset about the fake furor over talons. Mm. Uh, and probably you should just edit whole <laughs> section out, really. Okay. But yeah, I, I understand some people like have an issue with Tomb. I don't see it. I mean I guess that the fact that Toberman's mute, maybe. You know, I, I think there's some interesting backstory there that was unfortunately never mind, but I never saw that as him as, as yeah, I never saw that as as a issue. The other thing is like the Kit Peddler and Jerry Davis stories always have like a multicultural cast anyway. And mm -hmm. I've even said before that that was sort of like the, um, you know, that Jerry Davis was like the uh, Gene Roddenberry of Doctor Who because he was mm -hmm. always showing the future as this sort of multicultural place where, you know, everybody was just getting along with each other. So I never, I don't think that that ever came from a place of malice, you know, in Tomb because I think that all of his episodes were multicultural and it was just they, they cast a, you know, a person of color in that role. So, yeah, uh, we're getting kind of long here, but anyone have anything else that they wanted to mention about the Troughton stories and the Troughton era that we haven't talked about? Mike, uh, do you have anything more that you want to add? Seriously, no space pirates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think actually it's kind of fortunate that that's one of the ones we have so little material from just because, yeah, I think it is. But then again speaking to the fact that when you actually see a story, sometimes I like even like, I would say galaxy four, uh, even though uh, this is a Hartnell one that it, it was not returned in its entirety, but that episode that we did get, I have to say the, the whole story rose in my estimation with that one, because that third episode is so much better watching it on video than when it was just still pictures. So maybe if the space pirates was returned, I would say, wow, this is much better than I thought it was. I have a feeling that that one was probably beautifully filmed with some amazing model work that we just can't appreciate. I reluctant to say it would be another enemy of the world, but I, th I think it's one that definitely would 
benefit from coming back in terms of general fandom opinion of it. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, of course, I think we would all take more Troughton no matter how bad it is. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, there's something missing from season six without that penultimate story in there too. The rhythm of it sort of broken up badly. Yep. It really needs to be in there as a kind of last hurrah before the descent into the maelstrom. Uh, anything else you wanted to say, Mike? Uh, no, I'm good. Okay. Anthony, anything that we haven't mentioned yet about the Troughton era that you want to mention? No, I don't think so. Okay. Eric, any? I, I know you could talk about this for many hours, but is there anything you feel like, oh, we have to talk about this before we go? Do we need to talk about Lethbridge Stewart, the genesis of oh, Lethbridge man. Stewart? Oh, yeah, no, no, that's, that, that's good. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, let, let's do that. Uh, well, I mean, uh, so if you stuck me on that desert island and I had to pick <laughs> just one story, I would still take three with me. <laughs> and one of them would be Web of Fear, mm. which never disappointed me. I could watch that on a loop forever, except it doesn't have episode three, of course. And The Invasion, which is truly one of the greatest stories of the 60s. Um, Completely agree. Oh, my God. The score alone is worth the price of entry on that story. <laughs> that was my pre-2013 choice. Okay. Yeah. And, and actually, of all the stories in the entire series, I would say The Invasion is the closest to being the Avengers. Mm. It really has that slightly creepy swinging 60s thing going on for it. But of course, the through line there is Lethbridge Stewart. And I'm just so glad that Webb was discovered so that we could have the origin, even if we're missing the, the episode where he first appears, to hell with that. I don't need the first episode. Just, just having that wonderful story back. I'm convinced on that score, though, that some private collector got the because because I mean Philip Moore that th- that third episode was there when he first went to that station, and then it wasn't there when he came back. They they sold that to somebody. Why couldn't it have been episode one? <laughs> <laughs> because I'm sure the private collector asked specifically for that as the first episode with the brigadier. Mm, could be, yeah. Uh, it seems like an awful coincidence that if one of the twelve episodes went missing that were discovered there and it happens to be the first appearance of the brigadier. Hmm. Can, can I just say again for the record here, web of fear exists. We can watch it. Mm-hmm. I mean, for the entirety of my fandom from, I'll just say 1989, 90, whenever I really got serious to the year 2013, what is that? 20, almost 25 years. Mm-hmm. Web of fear was not viewable. And now it is. I can reach onto my shelf and pluck <laughs> Web of Fear off and put it in the DVD player. Mm-hmm. I pinch myself sometimes when I think about that. It's amazing. I mean, Trone has done so well. And of course, he had more missing than Hartnell just because, you know, the Hartnell stories were sold to more stations just because they were the beginning of the series and Troughton was sold less, but the Hartnell finds seemed to come back in, in, you know, bits and pieces, but the Troughton finds seemed to come back in whole stories. Yeah. Overall, you know, and so that's that's been wonderful to get, like, you know, when we were younger, two of the Cybermen, here it is, the whole thing. Now we get Enemy of the World and Web of Fear almost completely back in, in just one big chunk. You Do know, you guys remember when... Basically, there was like four episodes of season four and like a smattering of episodes from season five. And Mm -hmm. then you got the Dominators and then kind of the rest of season six. 
I mean, there was a time when there was only like 40 episodes from the whole of Troughton out there. Mm-hmm. And now we can yep. more or less watch the whole of Troughton. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's there. Well, I mean, season four is still really hard hit. I know it is, but at least they're kind of animating them. And mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's possible now to experience Troughton in a way that you couldn't do before. Oh, yeah. And definitely for people who don't want to hunt down recons or listen to them on CD, now having the animations makes that a lot easier. Yeah. It's truly nothing short of miraculous. And I think about how disappointed I was when I was a kid and knowing that I was never going to see that stuff. And now I just reach onto my shelf and pull it, pull it off the shelf. I mean, it's, uh, it's amazing. Miraculous. Yeah. I mean, I, I realize it's been long ago now, but I mean, that's the tomb of the Cybermen even. Like I like say, I read it as a novelization thinking that it was one of the lost ones and that I'd never get to see it and being able to actually, like I wasn't disappointed by tomb. Like a lot of it like kind of meshed with my imagination and the bits that didn't know well, but it was still one of like the biggest, most lavish sets that, you know, 60s Doctor Who did. You know, it was nice big chambers and everything. I mean, it was it was it was cool. It was great to get it back. You know, it's great getting these back. I'm so happy to have more Doctor Who. Let's go back for a second to uh, Lethbridge Stewart. Okay, yes, sorry. (laughs) Oh, it's my fault. Um, (laughs) But um, well, you didn't have to agree so readily, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> As I call him, like I see him. One of the interesting things about Lethbridge Stewart is that originally he was cast as, David Langton was cast as him. And Langton is one of my all-time favorite actors ever in anything. And it's interesting because if he had been cast as the Brig, then, you know, he died in 92, I believe. Hmm. So we wouldn't have only had the Brig through 92. So he really wouldn't have participated in the new series at all, Mm. or in the larger new series anyway. Well, and who knows if he would have engaged with fandom in the way Nicholas Courtney did. Who knows if he would have wanted to do the Pertwee stories like Nicholas, you know, I mean, like, who knows if we would have even had the Brigadier as we know him. And actually, his whole life would have been very different because Langton went on to be Richard Bellamy in Upstairs, Downstairs, and had an incredible career because of that. So he probably either wouldn't have been in that or he wouldn't have been in Doctor Who as a recurring character. So it's interesting how how uh, events play out. Yeah. The Brigadier is just such a wonderful character. I mean, and he's so, like, I always say that he's sort of like the the British answer to Captain America <laughs> because he's sort of like the distillation of British values in this single character. And I just love him to, you know, because he's this guy that, that he can have these disagreements with the doctor, but they come from genuine, you know, a genuine place of, I see things the way that I see them and you're being too lax or too, you know, relaxed about this. We got to be more protective and everything else. And I just, I love the dichotomy. I love that there's a friendship despite the dichotomy. And I think that Nicholas Courtney and just like the fact that he did realize, you know, cause I mean, there's a difference, right? You've got your actors who are like your Tom Bakers and your William Shatners who it's like 10. And I realize Tom has changed in recent years, but for the most part kind of look down on fandom and are kind of like, Oh, this is just something that I did, whatever. And then you've got your people like your James Duhans and your Nicholas Courtney's who are the ones who are sort of like, this was special. This was something that I did that was special. I get why people love it. And I want to engage with those people that love it and show my appreciation for the fact that they love it, that they love this work that I did. 
And I always love actors who do that, that make their time for the fans and who engage with fandom in that way. And so, you know, Nicholas Courtney is one of those guys that I think was just, you know, an all around, you know, terrific kind of guy. And it's great that he was, you know, he was on all those DVD commentaries. He went to so many conventions, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think that he was perfect for the role. And I really love that role. Yeah, he's awesome. A little shout out too for Benton being in the invasion and then reappearing in season seven. And I love the continuity of that too. Yeah. Levine's a pretty fun guy. If you ever get a chance to meet him. Oh, he's interesting. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No. Should we talk about Troughton's reappearances later in the three, the five and the two? Uh, let's not do that right now. Um, it is funny because it was something I was going to bring up uh, when Anthony was talking about the Doctor and Jamie, where I was going to talk about one of the reasons I'm convinced of season 6B is just because the Doctor in, would not treat Jamie the way he does in the two Doctors in, during the television period. That is so true. Yeah. I have issues with that. The two Doctors in general is troubling. Yeah. But, I mean... I'm still glad it was made, but it's mm. troubling. I don't like rabid Jamie to begin with. What an idiotic idea that was. No. But uh, yeah, well, we can talk about the multi-doctor stories when we get there. But I do I do want to mention one thing, and it kind of deals with it. The So again, remember, I come from the new mm-hmm. era of Doctor Who, and I specifically remember the episode where the episode that we lost Rose with the Cyberman coming in because some guy was working with Mm -hmm. them. And then here I go with the rewatch now going into the invasion. I'm like, wait a minute. (laughs) I know this story. It's just missing a perky little white girl. Well, and (laughs) I think we had some perky white girls in the invasion also, (laughs) but yeah. (laughs) But yeah, so it, it just, as soon as the invasion was ended, I wanted to go back and rewatch that same episode with Tennant with the 10th doctor. And it's like, who did it better? Hmm. Because it was still the same plot, a guy from earth working with the Cyberman to take over. They were going to keep their mind and not be controlled by the cyber controller. And it's like, hmm, which one did it, did the storyline better? And, I, and honestly, the reason that I think Tennant would even probably win aspect is because of how emotionally it was with the loss of Rose going into the parallel dimension. It's funny you mentioned that one, but I also thought that the one where they first encountered the Cybermen on the parallel Earth, the name escapes me, that one ha- yes. harkened back to the invasion yep. quite a bit, even using the name International Electromatics I think at one point. But yeah, no, the invasion is so good. Kevin Stoney as Tobias Vaughn. Oh. Perfect. Perfect casting there. Such a good villain. I mean, he's a Bond villain in a Doctor Who story. Yeah, but he's got a <laughs> he's got a weird, creepy electronic Bond score that mm-hmm. helps, mm-hmm. A- and all the location filming in it helps. Uh, I mean, it's just well, it's this is why Derek Sherwin what should have stayed producer for a while. Yeah, I really lament his moving on to uh, what did he move on to? I've forgotten now, but it was a soap or a cop show or something. And I love Barry Letts as a person, and I mostly like his his vision of Doctor Who, but I would have preferred another season or two like season seven, Mm -hmm. where you get a little bit more of that grit and thriller-type political-slash-science-fiction doom-watch-type thriller. Instead, we get Terror of the (laughs) Autons. 
all right we'll table that for the birchwee one but yeah no it's <laughs> no i i agree I, I think the invasion is that's what i say you know it's funny because we get the invasion as the prototype for the new season that's going to come and then the birchwee stories are nothing like the invasion <laughs> other than the fact that unit is there uh, and we get the brigadier. I, suppose, I, I have to think about that one. I'm not sure if I agree with that or not. That oh, I mean, obviously, Spearhead is the closest, right? I mean, yeah, but it's maybe. even Spearhead isn't that much like the invasion. There's an industrialness to the invasion. Like, the aesthetic of it is, mm -hmm. is very industrial. And you see that motif come back in at least Ambassadors and Inferno. The first two stories are a little softer than that, but that cold metallic sense is in those latter two stories and i love it hmm. okay <laughs> i'm gonna mull that over until our pertwee uh story but the other thing i wanted to talk about that we haven't talked about yet is the are the two dalek stories for troughton and honestly to me this is where the daleks finally find their footing hmm. as much as i love terry nation in those early days in his early stories i do genuinely like the hartnell dalek stories i think it's kind of fair to say that terry nation and this is you know sort of backed up by people who knew him at the time wasn't really as interested in doing the dalek stories on doctor who as he really should have been once he saw that they were popular you know that first one he supposedly banged out an episode a day just got those seven done in a week and was off doing something else once he saw they were popular, he started hatching plans to do their own, you know, his own thing with the Daleks. I think Invasion, Dalek Invasion, is probably the best of the of the ones he did for Hartnell. But Agreed. he didn't care as much. David Whitaker, who had been doing the Dalek comic strip, I think got da the Daleks as characters in their own right, like way better than Terry Nation ever did, and. I have a lot of time for David Whitaker's writing anyway. I think he is probably the great writer of the 60s Doctor Who. And having him be there for that initial regeneration story with power, but also tying in the Daleks and having the Daleks being sneaky and having them be very intelligent, hiding what they're doing, trying to put the humans against each other to weaken them so that nobody's paying attention to them also, but also to make it so it's just really easy to, to wipe them all out evil again with the daleks being smarter than everybody even tricking the doctor into what you know as to what their plan is i think that that is what when people think about the daleks as being truly terrifying that's where it happens is right here in the trouton air whereas i don't find them as scary in hartnell because they're just not bright enough really to be truly terrifying so my first experience of evil was there was a um a cassette tape release from the early 90s. Mm. Is that the one with Tom Baker's narration? Yes, and he okay, was I've heard wonderful. Of it. Just, it, I mean, it was totally bizarre having him narrate those anyway, but mm. it just really sticks out in my memory, and I wish they had kind of re-released that on CD so I could actually have it in a format I could listen to today. But, yeah, I mean, I've loved Evil ever since I heard that in, I don't know, 93. Mm. I think I'd have been about five, six years old. I played the hell out of that tape on road trips. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, to me, that is one of the best Dalek stories ever made. And I think your point, Nathan, Terry Nation, bluntly, he was a hack. He came in, he pounded out a story, he moved on. 
David Whittaker basically was one of the three people who really crafted early Doctor Who between him, Verity, and, and Sidney Newman. And I think he put a lot more of his time and his energy into making the show and making something that was really, really good. And that really does shine through in both power and evil. And, and you look at some of his external interests as well. He had a, a big interest in the esoteric. And I think the, the alchemical elements of both stories shine through as well, giving it an added layer that's just really interesting. Yeah, I, I'm going to be a bit of an iconoclast here and say that I actually prefer power to evil. I think evil was probably more visually interesting and evil's the one usually most people bring up. Oh, I want evil back. I want evil back. That was such a great story. But I, I really think power uh, story-wise. You, you should hang around Gallifrey base. They would be on the same page as you. Oh, okay. Yeah. The, the general consensus there is power. Oh, really? Everything I've always heard from fandom has been the evil is the better story of the two. Well, I think the consensus is that power is, Shakespeare in space with robots, you know, and mm. <laughs> that it's very well written and crafted and psychological in nature. Whereas, well, to use another Beatles analogy, if power is a hard day's night, then evil is help. Mm. In, in other words, it's very glossy and looks good and, and very psychedelic and makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I love power and I would love to see it back, but I think right now I would love to see evil back more just a little more because because of the visuals and the swinging 60s-ness of it mm -hmm. so mike when you were when you were listening to those or watching the telesnaps how did you feel about those two dalek stories dalek still freaked me out man <laughs> it's i mean of course i i was introduced to them in the new era mm -hmm. and of course and i had the same laughable that even the adventures in time and space docudrama I did too it's like oh what is this a whisk and a plunger but watching the new stuff and then of course going back to it and seeing the creation of them like i understand how terrifying they are and power and evil both gave me the same chills as like oh it's daleks i'm out dude just just whew, doc let's just finish this up here come on but it was a, it was once again another story from Patrick's era that was retold almost, almost frame for frame in the current uh, Doctor Who stuff. Because I remember specifically just watching and I had to turn my head to do something and I just heard a Dalek, I am your servant, or at, at the time, I am your slave. I'm like, wait, I heard that phrase. I know that phrase. That was a Churchill episode. Churchill had that crap. <laughs> And, and immediately, I I was again drawn to that because of the parallels from that from the new stuff that I know coming from and seeing the older version, basically the original. It's like, oh my god! And and again, who did it better? <laughs> who did it better? But yeah, power and evil. Uh, I really can't say which one I like better because anything Dalek related, I just have an immense, intense fear and know it's just going to be a struggle for the Doctor, for the Companions, basically for everybody. Mm -hmm. I find evil hard to envision in my head, uh, what it looked like, which is odd because we have episode two mm -hmm. and we have the telesnaps, but I've always thought the telesnaps from it looked, I don't know, hard, they were hard to see, like they were not very well exposed or something. And so I never, I've never really felt like it was it's always been a little bit out of remove, I guess, from, from me. So I'd really like to see that, just to see how they did the things in it, how they did the effect of them walking through the arch. 
And like, was there some video effect when Doctor Who gets turned into a Dalek and, uh, you know, all those things, right? I'm, I am right about that. Yeah, he gets turned, well, it's fake. And Marius Goring, he gets turned into a Dalek there at the end. He goes crazy and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, I'd like to have seen how they achieved all that. And the scale of the Dalek Emperor and all that stuff. It's very abstract to me right now. No. Yes, Jamie, it is a big one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a big fan of the new series. I'm kind of a curmudgeon in that score. But I do appreciate Dalek because I think that they were going back to that power idea of three Daleks take on a human mm-hmm. colony with just a single Dalek and Dalek taking out this whole installation this guy has. So. I like that. I like when the Daleks are on the back foot and you can show how clever they are instead of we've just got hundreds and hundreds of Daleks being disgorged on this area and it's just them shooting things and yelling exterminate. I'm not. I don't find that anywhere near as interesting. The other thing I wanted to mention is that really the Troughton era is what put the Cybermen really firmly in the their place as like the big Doctor Who villain that they are because they just get the one outing right at the end of Hartnell with the 10th planet. But Troughton encounters the Cybermen four more times. How many times did he did he face the, the Ice Warriors? Uh, twice. Ice. Twice, that's what I thought. Yeah. And so that's where you get the Cybermen as being this big threat. Although I personally prefer the, the aesthetic of the 10th Planet Cybermen just because I like the more human appearance to them. You can see some of the skin, whereas the Cybermen and Troughton, they are very metal and plastic. You know, you don't see any of the human parts anymore. And I think it's much more scary if you can see some of the humanity. It's why I think the 80s redesign was so good, was that they hearkened back to that, being able to see some of the humanity inside of them. Yeah, I totally agree on that, as you know. Mm. The Tenth Planet ones are genuinely scary, I think. And in the new series, they have done that. They've recreated that look and made it, if anything, more terrifying, actually. One of the few times that I've been genuinely horrified by Doctor Who. And I won't say why, but you can get an idea, I think. And it's not because the script writing's so poor. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's terrifying in any era of Doctor Who. <laughs> but, you know, I want to give some love to the wheel in space because mm. it is the most preposterous plot ever in the entirety <laughs> of Doctor Who. But it's carried off with such verve and excitement and happiness that you just can't help but love it. <sighs> the Cybermen flap their arms and go through space, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, Nathan. <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, no, I love the Cybermen. I think that they got a lot more to do in the Troughton stories, and I like things like having like the half-cybernized Toberman in Tomb and, and going back to that sort of idea of body horror. I think that the voices are scarier in 10th planet. And I think that the designs are, and like, like I say, because you can see the humanity still I think that's scarier. Anyone have anything else to say about Cybermen? The invasion was the best they ever got. (laughs) It's good. And, And the funny thing is that they're such a small presence in that story. It's the threat of Cybermen rather than the actual Cybermen themselves for most of it. They are so effective like that. I will say that I prefer that look, though, that the the look of the ones in Invasion to the looks in the rest of the Troughton stories. Well, while I prefer the Tenth Planet Cyberman style, I think the best they ever get is Earthshock, as far as costuming and Mm. design. 
and looking like they're not going to fall to pieces if somebody touches them. <laughs> yes. In the old series, I think Earthshock is really the apex of cyber development, right? Right. Well, you won't hear me disagree with that, but I'm, ta- I'm talking mainly about the Troughton era and what it does with Cybermen. All right, Mike, did you have anything you wanted to say about Cybermen before we wrap it up? I do love them. Now, Mike, you're not like that creepy Toya Wilcox in 30 Years in the TARDIS when she said, I really think that Cybermen are just sexy. <laughs> no. No. Oh my gosh, I'd forgotten about that. <laughs> Eric, you have no room to talk because I remember the time when I went and visited you at, at your house and one of the things you said to me was, you know, when I was in the shower, I was thinking about cybernization or I was thinking about cybernization while I was in the shower earlier today. <laughs> well, I think what? that it is perfectly normal to think about being cybernized when you're in the shower. <laughs> She clearly needs to get out more. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, Nathan, yeah, I think it's time <laughs> to, like it might Yeah, be it's time. time. It's time to call it. All right. <laughs> well, um, yeah, so uh, it's time to uh, say our goodbyes and let people know where or if they can find us online. So, uh, Eric, why don't we start with you? Oh, gosh, I'm, I'm not really online. So if you want to come see me, you have to take one of my classes. There you go. <laughs> and, Mike, why don't you say goodbye and let people know where they can find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at this is Trex. That's T Rex. There you go. <laughs> and of course, uh, I stream. Uh, I'm not streaming video games now because of of uh, my back because I can't really be entertaining when I'm cringing in pain. Mm. But you can of course find me over at Twitch.tv/trexlight. All right, and Anthony, why don't you say goodbye and let people know where they can find you? All right, uh, you can find me on the Watchers in the Fourth Dimension podcast. We are watching our way through all of Doctor Who, starting with An Unearthly Child and working our way through to wherever Doctor Who is uh, in like 10 years' time when we finally get there. Mm. And yeah, you can generally find me on the Atlanta area con scene as well. So uh, thank you for having me on the show again. Oh, no problem, Anthony. And yeah, Eric, Mike, and Anthony, thank you so much for being on this episode. It was a lot of fun talking about Patrick Troughton's Doctor. Heck yeah. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Good night. So that's it for our episode covering the second Doctor, Patrick Troughton. We hope that you enjoyed it, but we want to know what you think. What did you think of our guests? What do you think of the topic? Are you enjoying all of these topics going into the different Doctors on Doctor Who? Do you like it when we have Doctor Who guests on the show? Do you like it when I talk about Doctor Who topics? Do you think that the show is getting too Doctor Who heavy as I explore my favorite TV show, even though it seems like it's funny because at the beginning of the show, I didn't talk about Doctor Who at all. And it does seem like, yeah, we're doing a lot of Doctor Who topics right now. But overall, it's still a fairly small percentage of the shows that we do. But I am curious what you think about that. I also want to know what you guys want to know about the show in general. And that's because episode 100 is coming. So... Depending on the kinds of questions that you ask or the things that you say, if you ask me a question that's specifically about the show, about me, about the guests, that can end up on our episode 100 podcast. So please keep that in mind also. And the way that you can give us feedback on any of those things is by emailing us at everything at 42cast.com. You can also go to our website at 42cast.com and leave us a comment on any of the episodes there. You can go to our Facebook at facebook.com slash 42cast. You can tweet to us at 42cast, or you can go to our Instagram, which is also 42cast, and leave us a comment there. You can also leave us reviews on Stitcher or iTunes. 
And another piece of news that to share with you, I mean, obviously, if you're listening to this, you know how to get to the 42 cast. But I also found out that through the ESO network, we are now on Pandora also. So we're expanding, our range is expanding, and if you have any friends who, for whatever reason, don't want to use whatever podcasting app that you're using, but you think that they'd be interested in the 42Cast and they listen to Pandora, then let them know that they can find it there too. So yeah, that's a little plug for that. And the other plug that I want to give is for the ESO Network Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com slash ESO Network. It's a way of supporting the station. You get access to early episodes and exclusive episodes of all the different shows on the network, depending on what tier that you pick. And yeah, if it's if you have the ability to do so and you want to do so, we'd really love it if you could contribute a little bit to help keep the station running. So yeah, of course, 2020 being what it is, there isn't a whole lot else to talk about because... You know, there isn't a whole lot going on. Um, I don't know what we're doing next as far as cons or whatever. I know Chicago TARDIS is still planning to be held next year, and hopefully that's late enough in the year that it will be in person this time. And I know C2E2 moved to the second half of 2021, so that it's possible that we could go there also, but I don't have anything set up as far as panels or any cons, whether virtual or in-person, that I'm planning on attend. I mean, I'll definitely be attending Chicago TARDIS at least, whether it's virtual or in-person, because my tickets for this year were bumped into next year, so definitely got that settled, but I don't know what will be going on there, and it's way too far away now. It's almost exactly a year. But yeah, just everybody... You know, stay healthy, stay safe, do all that good stuff. Hopefully things will be better for you next year if things weren't too good for you this year. I've got several irons in the fire to improve my personal life in various ways, but they're at far too early a position for me to say anything about them. But hopefully some bigger and better things are coming. But as far as the show goes, also some bigger and better things are coming. I have got some great guests lined up for the next couple of months, and I'm working on beyond that and getting some more guests on the show so that we can continue to bring you a high quality of guests and guests that you'd be interested in listening to. So with that being said, join us back next week when Larry Houston will be joining us on the podcast. And if that name isn't familiar to you, odds are if you grew up in the United States and probably in most parts of the world, you have seen some show that he has been part of. He has been an art director, an artist, a producer on so many different projects. Ones that we've covered in the past, he was involved with X-Men the Animated Series, he was involved with Exo Squad, he was involved with the Fantastic Four Animated Series, and we're going to talk about that. But his career covers a huge amount of stuff, ranging from the 70s to fairly recent. Uh, He's also uh, been a contributor to various comic book projects and things of that nature. So again, you'll hear more of that when we do the interview. But yeah, Larry Houston's going to be on the show next time. So that's pretty exciting. But... Since that's next time, uh, we're going to have to sign off for now. So this is Nathan saying goodbye. You have been listening to the 42 cast copyright 2020. Got a question for the ultimate answer? Contact us at everything at 42 cast.com. Theme music is sharper swords by Brandon Ellis. Check out more of his work at www.cityfires.com. 
The 42Cast is a proud member of the ESO Network. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.